Hi, everybody. It's Reed. So here's what happened. We had this mammoth recording session that lasted nearly three hours with five participants, and it was thoughtful and encouraging and a tremendous amount of fun. But unfortunately, the next day, we discovered that none of the audio was captured for one of those people involved, specifically Ian Olson. We were unable to reschedule a do-over with everybody, so we tried this solution. Ian was gracious enough to re-record some of his core thoughts and observations on the stand, and during the edit on this episode, the, the one you're about to hear, we inserted his newly recorded segments into those relevant areas where we discussed those things. So what you're going to hear is the four others of us have our conversation. We will occasionally reference Ian, mention him, uh, sometimes even react to him, but you won't hear what he had to say during our portion of the conversation. But his comments will periodically interrupt the recording so that you can hear his thoughts on what we're discussing. We really felt that it was crucial to include Ian's contributions to the conversation as much as possible, but we did want to give a brief explanation about the segmentary nature of this episode. We don't think it hinders the conversation at all. We think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, kick back, relax, and we suggest buckling up for a three-hour tour as we tag along with some old friends to discuss for Quarterly King 4, Stephen King's epic masterwork, The Stand. Enjoy. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? You're listening to The Fear of God podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. Hello and welcome to Quarterly King number four, that very special Fear of God subset of episodes where things get a little crazy. One day, Uncle Stevie is hopefully going to stop by. In the meantime, we do have a party going on for you. With you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, we are in, uh, you know, it is it is a quarterly king. That means it's going to be a very special episode. Um, Reed, who is usually with me right now, he is off in Los Angeles or Portland or, or some other, you know, kind of part of the country. He's going to be back momentarily. In the meantime, I want to welcome you all to this very special episode. We've been hyping this episode for quite a while now. Um, if you're unsure and can't read the, the feed, we are today covering Stephen King's seminal landmark work, The Stand. We're, we're doing a little bit like we did with it, our quarterly king number two from last year, uh, featuring some of those fellas with us right now is fear of God favorite Blake Collier, the old mall walker himself is present and accounted for. Blake, welcome to the party. Hey, Nathan. You know, right now I'm actually recording from my local mall. I'm yeah, around, I'm carrying my laptop with me. 
That's great. Yeah. Man, well, hey, 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 stop stealing. <laughs> and suddenly you're a mall security guard. Um, so welcome, Blake. <laughs> it is a it is it is a pleasure to have you back. Also with us is Ian Olson. Ian, who was also present for Quarterly King number two, that of it. Ian, welcome back, my friend. It's good to have you. Now, I we we gotta give a shout out right now because Andy Whitfield, who was our everyman on quarterly King number two with it. He was uh, scheduled to be with us um, as of about an hour ago. Uh, uh, life conspired against him like Stu on the road to Las Vegas. He had to be left behind. Um, it is, un- it is unfortunate and we will miss him, but his presence will be deeply felt um, and we'll keep your spirit alive. Andy, we're going to pour out a cold one for you. Hello, So um, Andy was going to be with us, but in his stead, we are featuring today the one the only, uh, not to be confused with Zach Taylor or Isaac. It is Jeff Hansen. Jeff, welcome to the party, buddy. Yes, I am here in uh, Crestline, California, watching out for Mark Duplass creeping in the woods. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, if you see Mark and or his Duplass, Please alert us, because uh, we we are interested in that. Uh, but Jeff, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you. you Thank are you. A, I'm, I'm glad uh, to be here. Long time, long time reader, first time guest. You know, um, it's good to have you on the show. Um, at some point, I'm sure Reed will join us. But while he's while he's traipsing about the uh, reaches of the country, gentlemen, I did want. So Jeff, you 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 might have listened to the it episode and you know heard last time around so in it in the book it and in the subsequent movie um there is the losers club right you know it's it's mm-hmm. the the band of characters they each kind of play a certain role and that sort of thing well i had the distinct joy of assigning characters to us as the losers club the fear of god losers club last time around well i kind of wanted to do something a little similar with the stand. Um, and I'm, I'm going to keep Andy on here. I had Andy on here, so I'm going to keep him on here. He gets, he even gets a character too. Like I said, we're going to, we're going to keep Hillabofus alive. So with it, we did kind of the good guys, you know, there's, there aren't like, there's, there's just Pennywise and, and, you know, that's, that's not fun for, for recording to just have one person be Pennywise and everybody else be the losers club. But this time, the stand is a pretty sprawling piece of work. Um, there's a lot of characters. I did think it'd be funny. It, or fun rather and possibly funny hopefully funny otherwise just skip ahead five minutes um <laughs> to <laughs> so i am going to assign us some bad guy characters are you guys ready are y'all excited yeah let's okay do all right so ian you're up first buddy well I, actually a question real a question real quick and and reed can answer this when he comes on board uh what have y'all done have you just watched the miniseries have you read the book have you done both what Chime in and tell us. I first read The Stand at the tail end of third grade, which would have been after spring break in 1994. And I had the uncut edition. And it was later that I read the original. And 1993 and 1994 is when I read the entire Stephen King uh, corpus to date. And The Stand... Reading the Stand coincided uh, with the release of the miniseries on TV, and that just felt exciting to me to be able to point to something contemporary that 
was uh, coming out of something that I was reading and I was just jazzed to uh, tell people that right in the opening credits was Don't Fear the Reaper because I just thought that was so like, <laughs> I don't know, really subversive and, and dark and I shouldn't, I shouldn't act like it's not. It's just that perhaps the first juvenile impulse that would later blossom into like a full-on love of like metal and like dark things was uh appearing and um obviously it was a weird year uh and i probably should not have been reading all that stuff and despite being in many ways a sweet (laughs) considerate and polite third grader you know the fact of the matter is that i was familiar with a lot of adult stuff having read those books. I, I mean, I had also read some John Grisham and some Michael Crichton beginning the year before, because that was back when I would do grocery runs <laughs> for my mom. And the deal was, you know, I'd ride my bike to the grocery store and if I got everything on the list, you know, I can get, you know, some paperback off the rack. So, you know, I'd read Jurassic Park and, uh, the Great Train Robbery and Rising Sun and Sphere and then The Firm and The Pelican Brief and The Dark Half and just all manner of stuff that, you know, a third grader probably just doesn't need to become acquainted with yet. And, uh, yeah, since it was the uncut edition, you know, that led to me asking, like, my mom what ejaculate is. And... Look, like, that whole scene, I probably should have known just to leave well enough alone and just, you know, consult Webster's or something, but um, I was still innocent enough where that seemed like a good idea to ask. So, um, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and there was a little bit of uh, skepticism. Skepticism? That's that's pretty weak. Um, horror uh, at what I was reading, and yet uh, nothing happened, and I kept on reading... Stephen King and uh, Clive Barker came not long afterwards, and this is all why I am who I am today. <laughs> okay, goodness gracious, Ian. Okay, so you've so you've read you've read the book. Okay, uh, Blake and Jeff. Uh, I listened to the audio book and also watched the miniseries. I uh, I started the audio book. Did not make it very far, so I watched the miniseries. <laughs> All right. You know? All that mall walking, and you didn't make it very far in the audiobook. That's yeah, a so I have a hard time listening to audiobooks. I, I listen to all the podcasts, but for some reason, audiobooks just, they're, they're hard. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. So I, I did listen to the audiobook. Um, I have read the book before. I've seen the miniseries before. I did not rewatch the miniseries specifically for this, but we can get into some of that. Um, so, okay, good. Because I don't totally know if every single thing syncs up. I am referencing characters from the book specifically. I don't know if everybody shows up in the miniseries. So, Ian, I'm going to start with you. Okay, you ready? All right. So, Ian, to my to my knowledge, you don't have an online presence or at least a social media presence. Is that right? Well, I, one, I am like so proud of you. I'm impressed and proud. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I want you to send me some tips for how to make that work in the real. Um, so Ian, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just, all right. So Ian, just like you like to show up for short spans of time, but you make a big impact, you make a big impact. So 
Ian, I'm going to make you for our episode, the kid. You are the kid. You're not around much. You're not, you're (laughs) you're not around much, but when you're around, it's a big deal and we better watch out. Okay. So, so uh, again, he's not here, but I'm gonna give Andy a role here. So Andy, Andy is very active on social media and it's really quite fun and hysterical to watch. Until yeah. recently on Facebook. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But we're, we're going to go with the not so recently. Um, so Andy is the guy who puts on airs online. He's developed this razor wit and persona that surely must be a form of compensating for some ways he was treated in a former life. So Andy is going to be our herald. Okay. So Andy, <laughs> Andy is, is Harold Lauder, um, you know, because in post- uh, you know, post Captain Tripp's life, Andy has just, he's, he's remade himself. Now, what that means though, Blake, you know, you kind of let Andy do whatever he wants to, to you, you know, like you yep. just, you're a good friend to him, but you let him yeah. do whatever he wants. So oh, you yeah. are going to be our Nadine. You're going to oh, be sweet. Nadine. Oh, okay. I'm good with that. I'm so fine. Andy, <laughs> Andy is the. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. Rita's not going to join this show out of pure <laughs> principle. Um, so Andy is Harold to Blake's Nadine. All right. So, Jeff, Jeff, you still there, buddy? I'm still here. OK, awesome. Jeff, you're the new guy. You're the wild card. And I just frankly, I don't know. We, we don't know what you're going to do here. You know, it, it, it could go a bunch of different ways. So you get to be the trash can man okay so you're a bit of a wild yes. card uh, yes but that what that also means Give is me you and fire. ian are gonna be right you and ian are gonna be real friendly by the end of this conversation oh god <laughs> <laughs> all right oh. so we're getting down I, to the I, wire I here that just, blake doesn't know what that means yeah. Oh, no, no, well, no. That I, is not I in the miniseries. Know. Oh. Well, no, oh, I, I Blake up, knows. I read, I read up on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. He okay. read He read up on it. <laughs> no, I, All right. I so <laughs> we got a, we got a couple of just a couple of roles left to give out here. And then we actually have to start the episode. So. All right. So I am, you know, I, as I was scrolling through this, I was thinking, like, I'm the guy kind of brought on the journey by the guy. You know, I'm, I, I, in the fear of God world, I'm kind of the right hand to the guy. Um, I'm also someone occasionally prone to eating rats and human flesh. So I guess in the spirit of those things, I will be Lloyd Henry. Okay. So I'm going to be, nice. I'm going to be Lloyd. Um, you know, the guy who answers to the guy now what that means. So hopefully he's back in time to receive this accolade, but I just, I just wanted to dole out. So, you know, and you guys know this about him, but Reed is, he's going to be Molly Ringwald. He is our, yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. No, even, even better, even better. Reed is the heart. Reed is the, uh, the, he's the hard case. He's the tall man. He is that old creeping Judas. He's the walking dude, the man in black. He is the dark man. He is the king of nowhere. He is the main man. Reed is the last magician of rational thought. The big guy, the grinning man, the terror that flies at noon at midnight. Man of the West. Reed is Richard Fry. He is Robert Fremont. He is Richard Fremantle. He is Randall Flagg. He is Russell Faraday. He 
is the Lord of Dark Mornings, the Dark Prince, this man of Far Leagues, M-O-O-N, that spells, hey, Lackey, can you dig your read? Read, you're here, buddy. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Baby, can you dig your man? <laughs> He's a righteous man. <laughs> hey. Oh, hey. thank you. This is oh. up front, party in the back. I here. require him to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was worried y'all were just going to keep interrupting. I was just going to have to plow right through you. Um, <laughs> I made a point. So I did listen to the audiobook. I made a point to jot down every, more or less, there's about 90% of them there, every name for Randall Flagg. And ascribe them, ascribe them, Reed, to you, buddy. You are our fearless leader. Oh. So welcome back from your journeys, okay? It has, yeah, I am I am very, very happy to be here. Wait, and, uh, wait, 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 hold on just a second. I just realized that since I'm Nadine, does that mean that Reed and I are going to get to know each other really well, too? Hey. How you doing, Blake? I've missed you, buddy. <laughs> he was Beverly last time. I've missed you, buddy. You're Nadine this time. <laughs> <laughs> I notice your hair is a little lighter colored these days, Blake. Oh, well, let me tell you. Stop. Stop. No more. Okay. I know I led us all to the ledge. I don't need us all jumping off together. All right. This is a this is a family show, okay? This is a family show, and this is most definitely a family book, okay? Um so now that the ga- the gang is all here gathered in Las Vegas, you know, tinkering out in the desert, trash can man, do whatever the hell it is you're going to do. Okay. Um, I, I am curious. So this book, if, if you've never read this book, it is definitely worth your time. It is a, it is, uh, an excellent work of fiction. This second go round for me, uh, was I, I enjoyed far more than I did the first round and I even liked it the first time through, but the story in its, in, in its most basic germ is it starts with an apocalyptic, uh, uh, virus that wipes out basically the world's population more or less uh but uh a few stragglers and here and there i'm sure if we had a glenn bateman on our show he'd tell us exactly how many people survived but we don't so so yeah so captain trips is the name of this virus it takes everybody out in the wake of captain trips uh this character this sort of malevolent entity randall flag sort of assembles bad guys while elderly old mother abigail assembles the good guys and they kind of have their as the title suggests, stand. So before we get too far into the series, because I know that's going to happen with this crew, I am curious. I want us to just do kind of a popcorn style. Like this book is about an end to the world, as it were, at least, you know, what we kind of know as it. I'm curious what you guys think as you're observing the world right now in your daily comings and goings. How do you think it's going to end? What do you think is going to happen is it going to be Captain Trips? Is it going to be dinosaurs? Is it going to be a meteor? Is it going to be kaiju up out of the ocean? What do you think is the most likely scenario anybody can go? I really wish it was dinosaurs. Yeah, no kidding. But be awesome. I think what it will be is people on the internet staring at their computers, phones, and heads just exploding. Okay, thank you, Jeff, for that offering. That was rather dark. I think I'm going to have to go with uh, the plants and trees are going to take us out like in the happening. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that is a terrible way to AKA go. AKA climate yeah. change and sun death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've got we've got technological sort of infiltration of the brain space. We've got 
climate change and the erosion of the um, atmosphere is going to just poisonous make up the world. Poisonous gases in the air. Poisonous gases, plants. sure. Reed, do you have Reed? Do you have any speculations? Kittens, kittens are going to destroy us all. Too much cute. They're just so cute, though. That, are you are you kitten with us? Yeah. Wow. No, no. Wow. No, no. I'm not. I'm not kitten around. I'm serious. It's gonna. You cat to be. It's kitten. going to be. <laughs> no, it's. They are. Uh, they are evil, vile creatures, and they are going to suck everybody in with their adorable faces, and then just eviscerate all of us at one time. They're. They're hatching the plot right now. You know they are. Yes, they are ultimately going to be uh, our our untimely end, as it were. All right. And they're going to rule the world. That was uh, unexpected. What about you, Ian? Uh, look, man, it's already happening now. Uh, water is depleting, and it, we, we will run out of fossil fuels, and it's going to be sooner rather than later. So the reality is we're moving into the Mad Max universe uh, steadily, and... It, you know, it's weird. We're going to see coastlines disappearing at the same time that drinkable water is disappearing. And then, you know, before long, before too long, you know, we'll just have the erosion of the shoreline and the oceans will start to uh, dry up because, uh, look, some fool's going to start messing around with um, fusion tech. And then we'll have, you know, not an atom bomb, but we're going to have a full on like nuclear fusion blast going off somewhere and like this is uh 30 years out maybe so that's that's how it's gonna go down and it just um, brings to my mind how i just need to be getting fit like right now to to be ready for it uh the the signs are clear as day and the dominoes are falling and uh look uh, this this figure ain't gonna uh help me get through it you know and uh, fitness is not going to help me survive the loss of water and 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 oil and all that stuff. Of course, Nathan, it's that when the inevitable warlords arise, someone has to be there to jump on the rig and save the day in spite of the, the failure that in many ways he is. And uh, if that's got to be me, then I got to be more prepared than... I freaking am right now because uh, I ain't. So there you have it. Because uh, the other thing is, like, I can be in denial about how I'm not ready uh, for that world uh, uh, of, of blood and fire. Uh, the same way that you can be in denial that climate change is a thing and that we're responsible for it. But, like, newsflash, it is and we are. So just get used to that because you should have been already for a long time and i wish i could be more sorry about how not sorry i am uh with regard to that (laughs) (laughs) okay because fitness is going to help you survive climate change's effects so it's gonna be water world (laughs) is what you're saying yeah i actually think I actually think that we are uh, closer to a Captain <laughs> Trips than we'd like to think or like to know. I think that's probably not too far off. Biological warfare. Yeah, man. I really, yeah. I think that's probably closer to reality than we want to want to know. I like how it was like we, we're all being somewhat facetious, and then you you bring that, and it's like, oh, God, yeah, you're right. I don't, <laughs> I don't think... I don't think call my mother and tell her I love her. I don't think Ian was being facetious. Nobody was being, except Kit, Kitty Cat over here. 
Sanrio surprise. <laughs> I seriously think the plants have it out for us. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> hello, Kitty. Um, all right, all right, all right. So thank you for indulging that. Yes, everybody, this is going to be one of those episodes where it's just going to start start at a certain place and end at a certain place. Um, so we are talking about the stand. Before we get into the meat of the text, I did want to just take a minute and just talk about uh, sort of the outside of the text kind of world of Stephen King real quick. So I did want to test out a new segment here. Who knows if it will carry over to future quarterly Kings. Uh, it may be a one and done sort of scenario, but I want to call this little segment in the spirit of fear of God and the spirit of quarterly King. It is the Christ's of King. Bum, bum, bum. All right. So I don't know. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, you know, Ian, you started reading these books when you were like in the womb. So you've probably noticed a lot of this, but you know, like any author as prolific as someone like uncle Stevie is like, there's going to be repeated elements, right? You know, things that I don't even mean like narrative conventions. I mean like literal words and word choices and things like that. I noticed years ago, he, he loves the word apotheosis. Um, so that one, that one kind of pops up. You can kind of play a, a really slow drinking game to that. Like it's like once per book, but it's in there. <laughs> the other one, the other one, which is the name, uh, you know, created the namesake of this segment, the Christs of King. King loves, I don't know if this is a New England thing or what. He loves to have his characters deliver these weird idioms about with using the name of Christ or like, you know, so for example, for example, I've got three of them from the stand. Are you guys ready for this? This is the new segment. Let's the do Christ's it. of King. Okay. The very first one is like early in the book when Campion and, and his dead family are driving into the gas station and one of the gas station crew says Christ on a pony. All right. <laughs> Christ on a pony, you know, like in the, in the text, he was on a donkey. So I don't know. I don't know. Christ on a pony. I don't, it's an interest. It's an interesting image. I don't really know what to do with that one though. The second of the Christs of King as they appear in the stand is uttered by Stu Redman when he's in the lab. And this is a fun one. Oh okay? yes. I remember it's this not one. as, it's not as fun as the third one, but it is a fun one. It is Christ in a sidecar. <laughs> Christ in a sidecar. Yeah. I want that. I want that bumper sticker. It's like my boss is, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Jesus, Jesus take the wheel. Jesus Christ in a sidecar. Christ in a sidecar. You know, like it's just a great image. Uh, you know, just sort of, it's like Anglo-Saxon Jesus's hair is waving in the breeze and you're just pointing out the cows, you know, and like, look, Christ in my sidecar. Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ in my sidecar, you know? Um, the very last one, uh, that I found, I, I, I was really paying attention this time. This is, this is how microscopic, how granular this listen got. Um, there's a, I, all I attributed to is guy who meets Tom and Nick. I don't know. Do they stumble on somebody after the weird girl they meet? There's, I don't know. There's some person they encounter on the, on the journey with Tom and Nick. And he says, Holy Christ on a carousel. So <laughs> holy Christ on a carousel, Christ in a sidecar, Christ in a, on a pony. All right. So that has been the stands, the Christs of King. Do y'all enjoy that? Do you like that? Dun, dun, dun. You like that little? That was, that was enjoyable. Yeah. Am I? <laughs> Am I the only one who notices these things? That I mean, like, come on, come on. Jumping Anybody? Jesus. <laughs> 
That's the that's the really fun Jesus. That's the one. That's the one you pitched to VBS. (laughs) Boing 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 boing. (laughs) All right. So the Christ of King. That was fun. Um, I did. I did want to. You know. I let it never be said um, that we don't let listeners at home play along to Fear of God Bingo. It is worth a brief reference to um, or a brief allusion to the lost references in the stand. Okay. So. Oh yes. Uh, uh, I don't, Jeff, we haven't had this conversation before. I, we referenced lost on it. So I know at least Blake and Ian have some familiarity there. Jeff, uh-huh. are you, are you, are you a lost fan? Are you, are you versed in the lost world? I have actually been catching on, up on it as of late. Good for, you. Good for you. Then you can stay. Nice. I'm almost through season three, I believe. <laughs> That's some good stuff in there. I'm actually a little surprised. Well, uh, you know, many, some of you may know. So like, um, Damon Lindelof is a huge King fan. Um, there are multiple allusions in Lost the Show to even on writing his book, his memoir, um, and, and, you know, craft book. Well, you know, the stand specifically is a big inspiration for Lindelof. He references it. I've, I've referenced the, the, the book podcast he was on, but, um, so there's, it was fun listening this time through and I don't know. If Lost was around or where it was during its run when I first read the book. And so I wasn't as savvy to some of these references. The most obvious of which, of course, is um, Larry Underwood being the inspiration for Charlie Pace. Hey, baby, can you dig your man being um, the inspiration for you all, everybody? Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a really great one. Does anybody know? Did anybody pick up on any echoes of, of Lost in the stand? Anyone else? I mean, I feel like the entire structure of the story, like like this this cataclysm, then followed by, you know, recognizing that. And I don't want to say too much because Jeff is is only on. That's true. Three, I've actually already heard how it ends. So. Oh, OK. All right. I'm hoping that you heard correctly. But uh, but yeah, how there's this, you know, it, you think it's all going to be about this this one thing. And then it turns out there's this underlying sort of fundamental good versus evil platform that yeah, has been yeah. playing out. Uh, so I think the the utter, you know, conceit of the entire book is carried over into into Lost as well. Um, and that it ultimately comes down to this, you know, all of the ins and outs and all of the particular adventures basically boil down to a a stand between good and evil and, and choosing of sides and things. And so, yeah, that's, that's heavily echoes the stand for me when I watch lost there. And you read, you just referenced it sort of that dualistic nature. You've got man in black and Jacob, mother, Abigail, Randall flag, you know, I mean, which, which isn't a new convention for those pieces of work, but is a very direct parallel. I did notice this time around, even the, um, the threat of birthing in a post Captain Trips world reminded me a lot of Claire and oh yeah yeah baby baby turnip head um, so that <laughs> that that really rang out and even uh, kind of the Vincent and Jack Kojak and Stu kind of dynamic yeah. dog and the man sort of imagery uh, really stood out to me too but anyway I just thought it'd be fun to you know check off the lost reference on this episode of the fear of God. Um, <laughs> Uh, two quick, so, so uh, if you if you're unfamiliar with the formatting, we like to talk about specific little uh, uh, trivial bits associated with the work. I've got two of them, and then we'll jump into likes dislikes. But read anybody who has real specific sort of trivial knowledge about the writing of the work, feel free to throw it in. Um, but we've already referenced, or maybe we haven't referenced, but Lord of the Rings 
in the way that Lindelof is heavily influenced by King, King was heavily influenced in the stand by Lord of the Rings specifically. Um, and I just read a, an interview with him where he even says, instead of a hobbit, my hero was a Texan named Stu Redman instead of a dark lord, a ruthless drifter and supernatural madman named Randall Flagg, the land of Mordor played by Las Vegas. I just thought, I, you know, when when he writes it out that specifically, it's really fascinating to see just how much an analog some of this stuff was for him, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't know. Uh, Reed, did you have any thoughts on Lord of the Rings uh, uh, comparisons there? I mean, connections to Lord of the Rings, it's, it's, uh, it, it is, this is a bit of a stretch, but how there's this great cataclysmic thing that you're leading up to and you think it's going to be this long, drawn out sort of battle, as it were, and then it's really ultimately comes down to just this one sort of wild card event. You know, I'm, I'm basically comparing Trash Can Man to Gollum. You know, like there's this basically this one sort of wild card figure that ultimately sort of stops everything. Um, and uh, that's, re- that's really the, the primary thing that stood out to me in your comparisons there. But yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it is difficult when you look at a work this big and compare it to other sprawling works. There's going to be tons of minutiae and then also lots of broad strokes that you could say, well, this parallels this, this echoes this. Right, um, right. None of it, none of it is really like a specific homage or a specific parallel, but it all sort of informs each other. Like you're building sure. on the archetypes and you're building on the structures, and uh, and by doing so and doing so in your own voice, as King did, creating this new thing in the same way that he did this inspired by Tolkien, then. Lindelof and Cuse did this inspired by King and, and you yeah. know, in, in 10, 15 years, maybe somebody inspired by Lost will do something that everybody else gets very excited and into and, and all of that. And, 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 and Ka is a wheel and on and on it goes. Absolutely. The circle closes, but it all comes back to the same place again. That's exactly right. Well, and you think about you think about the nature of epics in general. There's not much variation. Right. I right. mean, they're all they're all journeys. They're all I mean, there's. There's basically one epic narrative, and all of them are variations on that on that narrative. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, one last sort of uh, trivial bit that I found pretty interesting was in terms of the publication story, as it were, the the, the publication, the release of the book. So the novel, The Stand, was originally published in '78 with a setting of 1980. I found this really interesting. The first paperback in '80 changed the setting to 85 well then the book was re-released in 90 and the story was set in 90 and some of the pop culture references were updated and that's that was actually really helpful to me because uh, you know my thought was how on earth did he write this in 78 and it's set in 90 this doesn't even make sense uh but it was kind of neat to see it was really kind of a rolling evolution of even even down to when it was released determining when the actual setting was was was, sure. cool. was the 1990 release the one that's extra long yes. cut, whatever yes. yeah yeah I've, I've heard yeah. There, there are people out there that are are huge proponents of the original version over the uncut really yeah. i know and i've never actually read the original version that i can yeah. recall i think the, the version that i read the first time before this refresh was the you know extended uncut whatever it was the which i think is I think, basically I the think, only version yeah. you can find 
I think it's the I think it's the ending that that turns most people off to the uncut one because there's just a lot after kind of the the, the sacrifice at the end, right? Uh, oh, and, interesting. and so that 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 was added. Well, not added on because I guess he wrote it technically reincorporated. Um, yeah, 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 reincorporated it. And so I think a lot of people just found that to be a little um, maybe not off putting, but just odd. Yeah. So. I'll have to try to seek that out at some point uh, to try to get a used copy or something because I would be curious at some point to read it to see what was what was missing and I, I know I wouldn't be able to put it beat for beat but just to sort of get the feel of the of the briefer version. If you, if you want a little bit of a generalized uh, discussion of that, actually the Wikipedia article on the book uh, divides each section of the book up and it the last paragraph is kind of the addition of the uncut version. Like what it adds oh, in, so wow. like it's okay. it's worth reading. I, I found it kind of fascinating, actually, just kind of catching up. So. Oh, cool! I'll have to check that out. Um, I have a I have a brief bit of trivia that uh, yeah. it, I, that I just always enjoy. It's about the writing of it. Um, so the um, we're, we're obviously listeners. We're going to spoil everything about this book um, or this miniseries or however you engaged with it. But I love the story about how King said he was writing it and he got so deep into it. He had so many characters and he was stuck and he was at writer's block for, I think the story is like two months. And for like two months, he was just sort of crawling along, trying to get to a place to where he could converge these stories. He started with like, well, let me send the spies out and maybe I'll do something with the spies. Um, but he kept kind of trying to land the plane. And then finally, he was taking one of his, you know, now infamous because of his eventual accident, um, his walks. And when he was out there, it just clicked with him. He's like, you know what I want? I want a bomb to come in and just take a bunch of people out so that I can reset the story. And he, you know, had this eureka moment, went back and began to craft uh, Harold Lauder's original, uh, you know, his plan to blow them up. And, you know, he only eradicated like two sort of primary characters in that, but that sort of set the scene for everything else. It's why you get, especially in the original uncut version, it's why you get about 850 to 900 pages of they're just, you know, Captain Trips and then in Boulder, and then the stand is like the last 200 pages. It's because once he finally landed on this is how I'm going to conclude this, then he said the rest of it came very, very quickly. And I always just find that story fascinating for the creative process, as it were. No, I, I think it's a great story. I think it's really interesting that the stand is in so many ways, really uh, prolix. It is so preoccupied with people just talking to each other and they might be on the move, but you know, this is not your standard post-apocalyptic, you know, survival fair where, you know, every other moment, you know, you're beating someone's skull in because, you know, you're trying to keep your tribe, alive you know even to the detriment of others it's it's a bunch of people who don't know what the flip is going on how to make sense of it and they're trying to figure out what's going on and make sense of it by talking to whoever they can find so it in many ways it feels more grounded in a way because i don't know we don't witness you know a dozen you know natural born badasses you know, come into their own the moment that 99.9% of the population dies. Because that's always the the bias that we bring to any, you know, film or TV show like this. We identify immediately with the survivors when the reality is that most of us are not going to have, you know, what we need to survive some scenario like this. And 
what what makes that especially like heavy is the fact that it's just sheer chance most of the time it's not going to be a long decline scenario where it's like the strongest survive and you know so you got to be tough to make it like with captain trips it's like hey so yeah uh four thousand of you in the continental united states just have the antibodies to not succumb to this thing and that has that you bring nothing to the table there you know there's no accomplishment um that you can boast in you know there's no preparation that you could possibly have done to you know in the meritocracy of survival like that makes you emerge it's just like hey i didn't die huh and that uh obviously we're still going to identify with the survivors because no one will immediately identify with the hundreds of millions of corpses that that, that is a narrative dead end obviously but it at least is more reasonable that, you know, we should identify with a, a Stu or a Nick who, as, as far as uh, types in this sort of mode of narrative fiction, are un- unremarkable. And I'm, I'm saying that advisedly because I don't mean that they are... It, in real life that they would, I, I'm not saying that they would not be worth consideration or not special in some way. I, I simply mean that they are, they are a common type of person. The person who goes unsung in the normal din of, of life with all of its um, vicissitudes, the viciousness of the world uh, coming at you on a daily basis in the normal workaday humdrum that uh, preoccupies so much of us so often, most of us do not, for the most part, stand out to one another. And that's just the way it is. And that is what typifies most of these survivors. So is that realistic? Yeah, I think there's a degree of that. And at the very least, it makes the form of the stand and it's material different from other, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of tales. And, man, there's a lot of talking. And it's interesting that the stand of the title seems to imply, like, a big battle. But I know this will come later, but I'm going to spoil it already. Uh, the, The stand that takes place is essentially you know, a testimony and its words. And therefore, it's really not uh, different in substance from most of what's happening prior to that. So it's interesting that even though we see people change, um, they grow, they develop into, hmm, some develop into even darker, more corrupt versions of themselves. And some discover virtue some of them you know slough off what is not virtuous and what is you know uh, not heroic some of them do discover the possibility of heroism and yet none of them become you know rambos or even rick grimes in a way who is still like on the mimesis level like kind of lower and yet like in a survival scenario yeah i want a rick grimes or two you know helping me out for sure and we just don't get any of those people. It's just that 
people interacting and trying to make sense of this mess is what characterizes this entire book. Right, right. No, I, I agree with you. It's like Captain Trips has a lot of different things that you're introduced to different characters, some of them for a chapter at a time. And then, you know, after the sort of the devastation of it, you're right. And to be honest with you, the conversations in the book are are some of my favorite parts, the interplay of ideas, people trying to come to terms with what has happened in the world and what they are supposed to do to be in the world. That's part of why I think the book resonates so powerfully, even after all this time, is because that's what we latch on to. We don't know exactly, like, if it was filled with elaborate action pieces and chess moves and lots of back and forth upper hands, uh, I think it would honestly be a lesser book because that's not what's so interesting about it. What's interesting is this thing has happened. How are we going to be in this new place that it, you know, this new world and what it looks like? And how do we navigate all of that? That's what's really compelling and and fascinating to me. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. And as much as I would probably sort of, you know, scratch my head a little bit at how shrift the climactic battle is. I mean, literally, you're building up to it. And then the climactic battle is about 30 pages. Like, if that. And it's not even really that. It's just them, yeah, they're just coming together and then just very quickly things happen. And so, uh, some people might bemoan that as a bit anticlimactic, but I kind of like that in the sense, and that's not uncommon for King in others of his works. I'm looking at you, Dark Tower. But it's, um, it's, 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 it's also, um, I, I think it's not what he's interested in as a creative. He's always been more interested in how are these people going to deal with this situation? Not what is this situation? And let's, you know, let's focus in on well, the, and you, the dynamic. You, you make a, um, to, to support your case there, Reed, um, and you and I had some version of this conversation uh, post both of us completing the text this time and how I'm just really fascinated. And this spoils nothing about to Jeff about lost, even though, you know, you said you already know much of it. Like, the trap lost accidentally fell into is making is propping up a lot of mystery um, that that frankly, the creators weren't that interested in, um, but just sort of the nature of broadcast TV and serialized storytelling and some that sort of thing. They kind of laid these breadcrumbs way out in front of them and then kind of had to honor, even if in just lip service, except the outrigger, of course. But um, as far as the stand goes, what's really interesting to me is there is nothing concealed about Captain Trips. Like, there's no, like... And and think about all of these, like, genre TV shows that have popped up, especially in the wake of Lost, but over the last decade or so, like these ostensibly character shows that are rooted in this deep, dumb, pedantic mystery kind of aspect. I'm thinking of things like Flash Forward or revolution or whatever these all of these kind of like copycat shows which you know i'm sure well intended and all that sort of stuff but um the stand specifically doesn't care about any mystery it is saying captain trips is this thing here's how it came to be here's what it did it doesn't matter why it happened it happened and here we are now let's examine what people do and who they are in light of apocalypse and that to me is a pretty fascinating question yeah well, and, and I think, I feel like we're brushing up against this. I want to open the door here or kick it in for all of us. Um, let Captain Trips have his way, you know, our <laughs> typical format here. I want to just, let's dive into the actual text of the material specifically. I'd love to hear, uh, some, some from Jeff and Blake here too. But, um, in terms of likes and dislikes, now for our vernacular, um, likes and dislikes is more like 
surface type stuff. You know, here's a here's a thing I liked in the story. Here's a character I like, whatever, you know, kind of interpret that a little bit loosely. But, you know, uh, what what are some things that you guys are just like, I really love this part or this person, this character, this interaction. What are some likes, dislikes about the stand? Uh, I mean, I'll start and say that uh, since I only watched the the movie or the miniseries, uh, the the one of few things I liked <laughs> was uh, was the fact that uh, Gary Sinise and Ozzy Davis were in it, and I I I, I really appreciate both of those actors. Uh, unfortunately, they weren't given a whole lot to do uh, mm. with whoever I, I guess it was i don't know if king was the final script writer for them for the miniseries or if he was someone else okay so i was not impressed with the uh the adaptation uh i haven't read the book so i assume like what i read on on the wikipedia sounded like they pretty much caught most of the plot plot arcs so um, sure but i was not impressed with the script writing but i do like the fact that that they got some Got some good character actors. Didn't uh, didn't Stephen King write the script? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He did. So, uh, which is, he doesn't have the best history of directing and or writing scripts. No, no. <laughs> so, so. Well, let me let me ask you this. So, I'm going to jump in here real quick. Um, okay. I I intentionally once I finished the audio this time around, I was so enamored of that experience that I. Mm-hmm. I actually opted and chose not to rewatch the miniseries because I yeah, didn't want it's to. probably a good thing. Yeah. And I've seen it years ago and I don't love it. And I was like, man, I've got such a positive experience here. I don't want to soil that. So remind me, who does Ossie Davis play? Is he Judge Ferris or Ralph? Yes. Or Judge, Judge Ferris. Ferris. Judge Ferris. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then Gary Sinise is too. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. I know so, the majors. Um, no, I mean, I, I think, I think Jamie Sheridan's a great actor. I yeah. don't like the characterization of Randall Flagg. <laughs> at all yeah <laughs> uh i think it was a little too uh a little too much elvis and not enough seriousness so yeah. <laughs> and and I, uh, I i was trying to think who said this uh but someone had said that they 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 saw randall flag from the book more as a oh maybe you ian michael shannon Oh man, that'd be oh, good. No, I yeah. said Michael Shannon. Oh yeah, Michael Shannon. Yeah, yeah. And so. somebody said, and this might have been Ian. Somebody said Mel Gibson, and I was like, Oh dang! Oh yeah, that was me. Yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah. That is yeah. I could see that. I could see both of those. So yeah, no, I I think Jamie Sheridan could have pulled it off if someone had written the the character better for the miniseries. But I just uh, it was a little too. Well, 90s. I think one of the plagues one of the plagues of the miniseries. No pun yeah. intended on plague there actually. Um, but. Is it's just so broad, you know, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not even knocking it. You know, they tried to cram a thousand pages into six hours of material or six hours of screen time. And like, that's just a lot to try. And as far to... as hitting the arcs, they did a good job from what I can tell. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that for, for what, for 90s miniseries, they didn't do too bad. So Sure. Yeah, they hit the major beats. Yeah. Jeff, what are, what are some thoughts from you, buddy? Some some likes, dislikes? Uh, one of my favorite things, which I'm going to try not to skirt into theme here too much um but larry's character arc i just love um one of my favorite things that writers do is start with a character that you immediately don't like and then by the end you're rooting for him sure and with larry it's not only that i was rooting for him it was like wow i want his bravery yeah that's Mm. awesome 
Yeah. Hey, can I, so Jeff, maybe you and I can banter a bit about this because I had, when, when it came around to me, my exact mention, my only like dislike was going to be how deeply I connected with Larry Underwood this mm. read through. Um, and, and that was not the case for, so I first, uh, saw the miniseries, then read the book, and then I have seen the miniseries a couple of times over the years since then. So my familiarity was much more uh, in the miniseries with uh, you know those characters and those characterizations. So Larry is just sort of part of the ensemble. But this time around, it stuck out yeah. to me so yeah. heavily. And I uh, here's what I want to get your thoughts on, Jeff. I don't know how much other King you've read, but I have a theory about some of his material that I feel like he includes in perhaps all of his works, at least all of the major ones, somebody that I want to maybe say this is a personal thing for him, like a personal sort of related journey. Um, He usually includes a creative type who has busted up their life and has a redemption arc somewhere in the in the narrative. You know, like it's it's Jack Torrance in The Shining. Um, So just to interrupt you real fast, I have not read any other King except I just started The Shining Last oh, week. wow. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So you'll, you'll see this, you'll see this in, in Jack Torrance's character. And that's all I'll, I'll say about that. But I find it fascinating because I feel like in a lot of his works, he's had so many now, I couldn't say all of them, but in a lot of his works, there is a character, usually a creative type, a writer, or in this case, Larry Underwood's a musician. Somebody who has a creative sort of framework and they have just utterly sort of busted up their life. But at their heart, you know that like they really don't want to be that way. They don't want this to be their story. And so then you get to follow them as they are sort of faced with these monsters and have to choose whether or not they are actually going to change the story that they're a part of and change how they are in it. Uh, I don't know if that resonates with anybody else, but that stood out to me strong for Larry Underwood in this reading of the stand. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like they're all the creative characters that he has in his books are basically trying to get out of their cocaine period. <laughs> yes. I yes. mean, seriously, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically him putting his own struggle into his literary characters. Right. Um, and Reed, I think that, um, your, one of my major themes I'm going to invoke has to do with the, the final leg of the book. And, and I think I was powerfully moved by the resolution of um glenn and ralph and oh um, my gosh and uh goodness gracious larry and larry larry yeah yeah. Yeah. by by just that that the way that story their stories resolve i was very moved by and just sort of you know in a way that and 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 jeff maybe you can speak to this um because you're listening to the audio as well is why i say that like I'd read the prose version before, but had never listened to it or never listened to it. And that was such an engaging experience this time around. Like I really, really enjoyed the experience of listening to the text. It, it, I don't know. It was just a really cool way to experience it. Um, I think, uh, um, I mean, I've got a, a, a laundry list here, but one of the things that's something no one has said yet that I want to throw in as a like, dislike or as a like rather is, and King is so this to me, this is an example or I would use it as an, as an example of just the strength of King as a writer. I love this is about a third of the way through, maybe towards the tail end of the Captain Trip section of the book. Maybe it begins whatever's after that. There's this there's one little one and then it re happens again in a flurry of them. There's the Disney world story, right? With this family that goes to Disney world and they're spreading Captain Trips everywhere. Well, oh, yeah. 
Then there's just, I call it the parade of death. I love that chapter. And again, I listen to the audio, so I'm not paying attention to chapter breaks and stuff. But I think it's a whole chapter where he just recounts all these incidental and accidental deaths that are not Captain Tripp's related, but are indirectly caused by Captain Tripp's experiences. Does that ring a bell at all? Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Whole chapter. It's, it's, You're right. it's yeah. just a, I love that sort of break in the action. It's like, hey, let's just, again, just showing the strength of King as a writer. You've got this massive umbrella of the stand, the story, in the middle of which is just this little vin- parade of vignettes that are just like, here's how the rest of the world is reacting to what's going on. I just love well, it. Well, and this is, this is not... Uh, a theme specifically, but I think it speaks to something that I that that I'll bring up when we get to the thematic part of the conversation. That chapter also illustrates quite uh, subtly how these people all survived the virus, right. and there's this impression given, especially by it's called the stand. It comes down to Vegas versus Boulder, or you know Vegas versus representatives of Boulder, and so there's these like good guys and bad guys, right? And you you get this sense of these people who survived the plague survived it for a purpose. And what I what I really love about that chapter is it shows like, hey, these are people who survived the plague. Some somehow were touched as, you know, as they speculated in Arnett, Texas about, you know, touched by the the finger of God, as it were. And so they survived that. But then still just stuff happened. Just the things happened. This poor baby falls and and, you know, hurts itself and cripples itself. And and the these people are messing around with a gun that they don't really know how to operate and, you know, wind up killing themselves that way. And there's just these these choices that cause these things to happen. And I I do love how King. So so King has always been sort of like theologically minded, as it were. That's not to say that he's an overtly like religious writer, but I feel like his particular sort of theological framework is most exhibited in the stand because you get sort of God influencing things and you get a force of chaos uh, is what he would probably call it. The forces of evil, the forces of darkness, the imp of Satan, as it were, influencing this other thing. And then you have just things that happen just in the interplay things that happen. And I find that immensely fascinating. That's part of why I love that chapter so much is because it's great. Yeah. It's just, you get, yeah, there is intention (laughs) and there is chaos. And then there is just coincidence happening. I kind of, I kind of, cause it sounds macabre to call it this. And, but it's a fun chapter. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, this is a lot of fun hearing how all these people (laughs) die. Cause it's just so inventive (laughs) and just really displays his creativity as a writer. Um, it kind of reminds you of Final Destination, right? <laughs> no, no, it sure doesn't, Blake. But we will reject your attempts to, uh, uh, you know, sideline this conversation into terrible things. <laughs> Ian, Ian, what are what are some uh, what are some likes or dislikes that you've got, buddy? Um, I like that the stand is populated, uh, you know, again almost entirely with. If I say normal people, that is so. Uh, cliched and it doesn't get to the, the heart of the matter as true as it is but they are yeah i'll just stick with what i said before unremarkable people who you know find themselves suddenly thrust into something unimaginable and in which more is demanded from them than is really reasonable to ask 
and all of them are forced to try to accommodate themselves to receive help from somewhere else in order to make good on the responsibilities that are placed upon them. And some break upon the demand and others, you know, seemingly kind of are are carried along on the current. They, and I wouldn't say that it's something that is simply intrinsic to them, you know, this kind of like upstandingness that was native to them that, you know, makes them better. It's just that some rise to the challenge and ascend and others, the demand comes. Some, some try to meet it and are broken and some refuse it. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's an analog for the fear and trembling of every one of us all the time. This is just that writ large with a uh, scenario that heightens the stakes that are always there, admittedly. Uh, Another thing I like is um, how there's such a clear set of parallels between this and the Lord of the Rings. And you can be snooty and supercilious and say that the Lord of the Rings isn't literature, but you're wrong and you need to get bent instantaneously because I don't think that there's a more penetrating examination of the psychology of creatures made by a good God who must try to uh, penetrate the fog of good and evil in the world and take action with the awareness that um, though they may want to align themselves with good, they are not intrinsically good. And even trying to do what is good is not a sufficient help to doing good. That That's what's so heartrendingly beautiful about Boromir. And I do mean beautiful because there are traits in him that are worthy of, you know, songs of praise, right? You know, the way we remember fallen heroes from ages long past that we have little imaginative uh, ability to enter into. There's, there's so much to praise him for. And yet those very things are the entryways for temptation to sink its talents into him. And, you know, it's proverbial that the the worst thing that can be done is a good thing, you know, done for the wrong reason. And, I mean, the Lord of the Rings just demonstrates again and again trying to do the right thing, but without sufficient examination of the means to prosecute that or taking into account that there is some part of you that is on the side of Mordor, however much you would deny it. However much it's true that you are behind the walls of Minas Tirith, that you are susceptible. So uh, the stand, returning to that, is, you know, King's attempt to give 
you know, the, the, the U S its own end of century Lord of the Rings. And there, there's lots of things that, that, that mirror the Lord of the Rings. But one of them is the fact that it takes its time ending that the, the, the denouement from the, the final stand, you know, we have the journey home and we have, I, I, I love that Stu is not able to enjoy uh, the free zone in the same way, it, it, in the same way that, that Frodo, though, obviously, of course, happy that he has saved the Shire, he cannot enjoy the Shire the same way anymore. And it's not just that, you know, he's seen the wider world, so it doesn't mean as much to him. It's just that the Morgul blade, you know, wound is an analog of, you know, his encounter with his own shadow in some way has tainted his ability to just go back, you know, psychically, emotionally to what had been before. And healing has to come from somewhere beyond the boundaries of the world. And there's something that just makes my head throb heart-like as I think about it. I, I am pierced to the soul over the beauty of that. How that is an analog of how we we all need consolation and healing that comes from beyond the boundaries of this actual world. And how bitter that is. That it simply cannot be found here. And we must be here. And um, I don't think anything can compare to how, you know, Frodo must leave. But, you know, Stu leaving and, and, and that, that, ex- that extended exit that we get in the stand... I think is it the best that King could do. And I think that it works as a hat tip to that, as his acknowledgement of, you know, sometimes you undergo the experience of something that needs to be done. And we all can acknowledge that things like that will change us, but we're not maybe always upfront, you know, with others and with ourselves that, you know, what we're fighting for, we might not be able to come back to and be satisfied with in the same way that we had before having to defend it. So, man, I'm taking a long time saying this, but I do appreciate that King attempts something like that with with the ending of The Stand. And, and that, you know, ultimately, Flag is still out there. It's not like evil is now finally defeated. So there's even maybe some echoes of, you know, what Galadriel calls the long defeat. You know, we can never, you know, say, well, now, now we have decisively defeated evil. You know, that's not our task. Our task is to clear the fields now so that those who come after us can, can plant until once more, but, you know, the rain, the weather, the crop they get, you know, that's, that's not for us to determine or, or know, you know, our job right now is to take on and resist the evil that is here now, you know, 
that, that's a that's a that's a big goal, and yet it's also a smaller aim, you know, than defeating evil forever. That's that's not for us. So it still is a matter of you know small aims, short aims, which are they're big, they're too big for any one of us to do at any one point in time. But at least it's not defeating cosmic evil in total. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's funny you say that, Ian, because I want to, uh, uh, you know, jump on there because I I found it interesting in the listen this time, and you just referenced this. Nadine, I think later in the book, once she's departed ways with Harold, there's some reference to Flag's influence having having affected Harold. But I do think it's worth noting, and I this is no by no means a theme for me because uh, you know it. it it was more interesting than thematic in the moment. What's interesting, and you just referenced this, is Harold's self-awareness at the end of his life. It was very much, Flag is is significant, but I made these choices. And I think that's a really powerful read, sort of like to your note about the theological framework of King. He's like, ultimately, the responsibility rests, in this case, with Harold. Like, yeah. there there are factors that are external to me that may have an influencing effect, but the choices made were mine, and I have to live with that. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Well, and uh, Reed, did you have any... I, I can't remember. Did you say your likes? Did you want to say something in here? I piggybacked on Jeff's because basically my, my primary thing that I was going to mention is the character of Larry Underwood, his art, right. his story. He really just stood out to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, that's that's my primary thing that I wanted to mention. I want to throw out um, and, and there's a way I, I, there's a way this could bleed into some thematic stuff. I don't really want it to at the moment, per se, unless we just go there. But I. I know I've referenced this a couple times. So I'm in the car a lot. It's it's really absurd. The the stand as a audiobook is 48 hours and I I realized at about the 20 hour in mark that you can speed up <laughs> the audio. Um so I set it to one and a quarter, which was just enough just fast enough to make for uh, quicker progress but not so fast that it felt silly. Um so I was able to cover a lot more ground that way. Um Sort of like Larry on a motorcycle as opposed to Larry walking. Um, <laughs> but I, I was so taken in and uh, uh, sort of swept up in the story this time around. And one of the specific reasons, and this is this I think was subconscious before even now that I'm saying it and I'm recognizing the why I sort of chose this. There was a night, so audience members won't know this, listeners won't know this, but we all started a group text about two weeks ago or a week ago, whatever. Well, the first night that I started to maybe watch the miniseries. <laughs> this is a funny, this is a funny sidebar here. My mother-in-law moved in with us a couple months ago. That's why if you're listening to the show, that's one of the reasons, primary reasons we moved uh, to get a bigger space. Well, mother-in-law, this is really fun. Mother-in-law is like my scary movie buddy now. It's really funny. <laughs> um, she's like 67 years old. Um, she years ago gave me Firestarter, the book. So I knew she might have some inclination towards some of this. And one time, uh, a couple weeks back, I was like, do you like scary movies? I mean, would you want to? Um, and I said it like and scream. Do you like scary movies? <laughs> um, you know, I was like, you know, we, she watched Castle Rock with me. We've watched a couple of scary movies. This, this is great though. Um, I was like, Hey, I don't know if you've ever read or seen the stand. Um, I, this after I'd finished the book, I was like, I'm going to start watching the miniseries. Do you want to join me? Well, she, she joins, we get like 20 minutes into it and she's just goes, 
this is boring. I'm going to go read a book. And I was, <laughs> I was like, I think I was like, I think I'm with you, sister. So I actually stopped. And, and the more I pondered whether to continue, the more I was not interested in that because one, what I recall of the series, I like certain actors who are in it, but I do think there's several characters that are grossly miscast. Um, uh, one of which is I like the actor fine. I'm sure he's a great person, but I don't like the actor. I don't like the performance of Tom in the miniseries. Um, oh, yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I, and, and, in, and one of the main reasons I resisted rewatching the miniseries after finishing the book this time is I loved Tom's, my experience of Tom this time around was powerful. Um, and so I wanted to just real quick throw this in, in terms of my likes, two specific Tom stories. And again, if you've never read the book, you're not going to watch the mini series. Tom is a mentally handicapped character who enters and it's, it's this really great pairing. Uh, Nick Andros is another character played by Rob Lowe in the miniseries where Nick is a deaf mute. Tom is mentally handicapped and they are this pair. And it's this really lovely, speaking of echoes of Lord of the Rings, uh, Stu maybe be, maybe a direct analog to a hobbit. I love the notion that the least of these are what survive and propel civilization forward. I just really love that. But, um, so you've got Tom and Nick who are this really fun pair in the book. Well, um, Tom becomes kind of central to some of the plot elements. And there's a part where they hypnotize Tom because they're going to send him into a spy into Las Vegas where Randall Flagg is. Y'all, I was like in tears when Tom oh, was man. in yeah. his trance. Yeah. And, and sort of mm-hmm. speaking as cognizant Tom. And the moment where I don't even remember everything around it, like the text around it. But he says, I am God's Tom. And y'all, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to pull over because I'm going to start crying. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it, and again, we could, we could run down this as a theme if we want to, but what it's sung out to me of was things we ask of those that we think can't carry it. Like, mm. you know, the, the, the things we foist upon those that we think aren't able to carry that burden. And so that was a really powerful notion to me. But the other Tom story that just had me move to tears was um and and ian you referenced this earlier in terms of the analog of frodo's return in lord of the rings and Stu and tom returned the boulder the first time i read this book i hated that last part because i was like oh my god just get just finish already but i think <laughs> but i think a lot of that was that psychological experience of of reading or watching a movie where you're like you want to check the box you know what i mean you want that Psycholo- you, you want that psychological accomplishment, that achievement of like, okay, I'm done. I read the stand. Well, because of that, I didn't really engage and enter into that. And this time around did in a profound way. And Tom singing the first Noel on Christmas morning with just he and Stu was just like magically resonant to me. It was really mm. powerful. So those are, those are a couple of just kind of really major likes for me. I mean, there's a bunch of other stuff, but you know, we could. So, so can I give one dislike? Yeah, please. <laughs> so, uh-huh. coming from just the miniseries, I hate Mick Garris. I hate him. <laughs> I hate everything he's done. The director. Oh, okay. He, I hate everything he's done. What else has I he mean, done? He's, I, like he's. Oh, I'm trying to. I, I looked the other day, and I, I was looking through the the uh, filmography, and I was just. Like, I love that I'm. Like, I that love one. that you're like. I hate everything he's done. I'm like, well, what else? You're no, like, no, I don't no. know. <laughs> like so. No, so uh, I'm looking at. Uh, so he did Critters two. 
He did Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. Oh, it's, Sleepwalkers it's a, is it's a bad movie. It's a bad movie, but I enjoy it. So I will give him that. Um, uh, yeah, and then it's a bunch of, bunch of TV shows, like Amazing gotcha. Stories, stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's not good. He did write Hocus Pocus, for whatever that's worth. So uh, Writing Hocus Pocus counts for a hell of a lot, because Hocus Pocus rules. And I will not recognize anyone who claims otherwise. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold up like you think it does, Ian. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. But no, wow. I think... I think the miniseries is a slog. Like yeah, yeah. it is every choice he makes directing wise is the wrong choice. Wow. Like there's that's, so, that's some, that's some strong words, Blake. No, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. I had to sit through six hours of that crap. So no, 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 Blake, you chose to sit through six hours of that crap instead of reading a thousand page book. Let's just be clear. This is true. This is true. Well, Blake, my uh, so so I was very excited um, because we were preparing for this conversation and occasionally um, I can get like usually three times a year I can get my wife to watch something that she would not otherwise watch, uh, usually on Father's Day, Halloween and my birthday. And for Father's Day, I was like, I really want you to watch The Stand because uh, you've never seen it. You know, don't know anything about the book. So I really want you to watch. She I think would wholeheartedly agree with you because she spent about four and a half hours sitting there like, oh, okay, all right. And she did, <laughs> she did feel at when it gets to that final sort of hour and a half, she did, she did say, she said, okay, some of this is, is kind of moving. And she said, I do see why you respond to the story so strongly. But she said, yeah, yeah. like the, all, all of the stuff, the sort of the turns it takes. And I just, I think that the miniseries, for whatever reasons, doesn't hold up terribly well. Um, no, and it, no, it pains no. me a bit and, to say that, but it really and, doesn't. And part of me wonders if, if some of, of course, you said that you watched the miniseries first before you read the book, right? I did, yes, yes. So uh, I would imagine, do you remember much about your first viewing? Um, well, I watched it on broadcast TV. So yeah, so um, I did too. Uh, yeah, back in the day, and and I remember liking parts of it, but there were like literally two or three scenes that I actually remember seeing at that time. Mm. Um, so like this was a fairly, pretty much a new viewing for me. Um, oh, gotcha. So there were parts I was like, oh yeah, I remember this part specifically towards the beginning of of the series, whenever people are dying and and she's dealing with her, yeah, you know, like. Um, uh, Molly Ringwald. I can't think of her character name. Franny she's, Goldsmith. Yeah, yeah, Fran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's dealing with her dad's death. <laughs> it's Franny. I love that we were basically just like you idiot. It's Fran. She's a central. She's a central character. Did you hey, even hey. watch it? Yes, I did. Well, that's because I'm. I'm that's because I'm a bigger John Hughes fan than I am a wow fan. All right. Um, anyway. Well, why don't you go find that podcast and join <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. Like I, I remember that scene where she's dealing, like she's she's dealing with the death of dad and a few things like that. But I, I don't remember a whole lot about it. So this time, this time around, I was like, surely there's more to this than what I'm seeing, because I, I, I still recall watching it, and I still like it's 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 a memory in my head, and and so I don't I don't remember a lot of things from that time in my life, and so. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, why did Coca- why would cocaine's certain- a hell of a drug? <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. No, uh, like why did why why are these two or three scenes so stuck in my head? Mm. And I have no idea why because it is horrid. <laughs> like <laughs> it is so bad. Uh, 
No, it's like that. That's my biggest dislike. Miniseries wise, like every every directorial choice he makes is just a really poor choice. Uh, yeah. Well, and and, so, and uh, I don't I don't really have any of the text this time around, especially I don't really have any real strong mm-hmm. dislikes I would point to, but I will say in my memory and listen, y'all like I do occasional acting stuff. I understand this world a little bit, not to the yeah. degree that people that are in major things like this, but, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't want to knock a guy for getting a paycheck or needing a paycheck, but Corin Nimick is so grossly miscast and sucks. Yeah. Like he is so bad. He is such a terrible, like re-listening to, or, you know, rereading or listening to the story this time around. I was like, Harold is actually a really interesting character and is not at all in the, in the miniseries. Yeah. yeah. No, he's not. Uh, I really like the development of Harold, how he, in lesser hands, he could just be a simple cardboard Ju- Judas character who, you know, will infiltrate the free zone and explode it from within. I mean, he does that, and yet he goes about it, um, he succumbs to a, a, a despair, right? There is an impotence to his his will and his imagination that lead him to habitually victimize himself and also to, to project, right? And, you know, Stu... And Fran become objects, you know, of of his hatred, and he he aims to kill Stu. And in in wanting to further that aim, we see change take place in him, and he is given a genuine second chance in in the the free zone. And to all outward appearances, it looks like he is taking it but we we have the insight that he is as warped as ever and he is held in thrall to Randall Flagg and he does what he does we we all know what it is I find it incredibly compelling that that he escapes and that Nadine leaves him behind and says that it's it's merciful, you know, that, you know, she wants nothing to do with him, but leaving him alone to die is more merciful than what Flag had had planned for him. Um, the dynamic between the two of them is incredibly uh, compelling up to and including there that you can think, esteem someone that little. And yet there is some human part of you that cannot stomach a different end. And we sometimes verbalize, you know, the kind of outcomes we would like some people to experience, that we would like to see them experience. But when it comes down to it, in an actual scenario like like this, Nadine simply has to we might not even be able to properly call it mercy, but just the the thought of how it is, you know, quote unquote, supposed to go. She she can't she can't stomach it. Uh, and I and I love that Harold then is left by himself, and he uh, he toys with the idea of blaming others, but he says, "Nah, that's not 
that's not honest. That's not telling the truth. And he recognizes his failure in such a visceral way. It is such a, you know, just punching this hole straight into your sternum and rips your heart out. If, if, if you have any lived experience with having failed others and knowing that there was not even a sufficiently good reason for, for it to happen, that it was just sheer selfishness and short-sightedness and knowing how you blew it, you know, um, I, I wouldn't say that Harold, you know, is a likable character. It's just that I couldn't help but feel for him. And I want to think that I felt for him as a character and that it wasn't simply me, you know, indulging, you know, self-pity. But certainly in reading Harold, I also read myself. I am implicated in reading Harold. So I, I hope that both were happening at the same time there. So just the, the, the waste of potential that we see in Harold and it just comes to nothing and it comes to utter despair. And, uh, then, you know, later subsequent to that, I, I like that Stu insists that, you know, he will be avenged, you know, it, it takes something. It takes grace to see the perpetrator of an evil as a victim. Which is, I mean, that's that's what Boethius would say. You know, the first victim of evil is always the evil person, him or herself. And and Stu insists that Harold needs to be avenged as well. So, you know, we don't have to... It's not like we have to dress him up as, you know, he was one of the heroes after all. But it's also, you know, he doesn't have to be uh, uh, paraded. He doesn't have to be uh, burned in effigy, right? He did wrong, undeniably. And yet we don't have to make him into the villain. He was a victim also. And it's hard to navigate that. And I think it is done capably here. Um, so let's, all right. So let's, let's, let's steer into, you know, it, it is, it, we're the fear of God. We talk about things that are scary. Um, it's the, it's the, it's Stephen King, the King of horror himself. Like, let's talk about, let's, let's each, you know, throughout one, we can kind of overlap if we need to, um, throughout one, thing that we actually found scary in the story about the story character wise what have you i'll start and i will say this held over for me i remembered this from the first read through the lincoln tunnel sequence it's already been referenced that junk is freaky that is a very creepy scene it reminded me of the night vision sequence in uh 28 weeks later in the subway oh wow terrifying yeah yeah it reminded me of daylight with celeste alone i'm just kidding (laughs) <laughs> well, and I, I love, I love in this in the book how we, you know, we reference how Larry may be the most fully realized character in the book ultimately. But I love in the book how he's that's a real pivot point for him as a character, and then with Rita's death shortly thereafter. But because because you know, as a reader, Captain Trips, all these people are dead. So so sort of intellectually, you know, okay, it's not like this suddenly going to be going to become a zombie story. And these people are, these dead bodies are going to start attacking Larry. So one, it's just a testament to King's skill that you can make a thing that is inherently not going to happen, become scary, or at least the scenario itself is, is scary in and of itself. 
I love just Larry's journey, like the, the will required. He forces himself from one end of this tunnel to the next. He ends up firing the gun and not knowing what's happened. And then Rita shows up after she's left him for a bit. Um, you know, he's, they're stepping over these bodies. It's just a really well executed set piece anyway. So yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my scare for the book. I, uh, I'd say that, and, and I would imagine in the book, this is a lot more, uh, frightening, at least in my head, I would imagine it would be, is the uh, physical decline of Trashman throughout the narrative. Oh, yeah. That's rough. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's so that and and I actually really like the so I did get far enough into the book to to get some of the the actual book narrative. Uh, And I really like the opening scene, like, you know, where uh, Campion uh, is basically trying to get out of that. Like, that's a really well formulated and written scene, uh, especially when you could say that he was the downfall of sure. all nations. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I well, was, that's such a, you know, you're are really good highlighting Campion. He's such a bitterly tragic character, even though he's got such a mm-hmm. bit part to play. Well, he's a highly influential character, even though he's very short shriftly in the book. But yeah. when, when he shows up or when he, you know, haphazardly steers the car into the gas station and he's, he's asking about the family, his wife and child. Mm -hmm. That's really, yeah, it's terrifying, terrible and depressing. Oh gosh. What about you, Jeff? Uh, so in generally speaking, um, just the, the super flu is scary because it doesn't seem that far from reality, but, uh, more specifically when, Randall Flagg and Nadine, when they meet in the desert, that's just such a disturbing Ugh. scene. It's yeah. gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's really not anything more to say about it. It's just, right. it's disgusting. So mine is, um, I-, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, there's a, there's a lot of really sort of impactful moments that I'm like, okay, well, this, this is something that I really loved. But I was like, what, what part really sort of like creeped me out or scared me? And I'm going to have to point to, the very first time, I think it is the very first time we actively meet Mother Abigail, and she has to walk to the neighboring house and collect sort of the goods because the people are coming. And so she has to collect like, you know, the the chickens and she's got to, you know, she's got to prepare everything. And then her walk back home. Oh, with the weasels? The, yeah, when the weasels surround her and she's out there with the corn and I remember reading that, and I remember thinking, because I was really, King's such a visual artist at times where he really just puts you there, where you can clearly visualize what they're seeing. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord, just this mountain of eyes, these glowing weasel eyes, like, surrounding her, and this this frail, you know, more than a centuries-old woman struggling to get home, and just the weight of all of that. Just, she's up against natural forces and supernatural forces, and, um, and that whole thing really sort of set my set my spirit on edge as it were of just this sort of would where it kind of put me is that like you know obviously circumstances are dramatically different but i'm like would i show that level of courage because at least the people at the end the the sort of stand as it were they were sent they were given this very clear distinct mission and sort of had you know, a, a few weeks to prepare for their eventual thing. She's just on her way home, and suddenly this 
this flood of sinister forces are surrounding her. And uh, so that sequence really stood out to me as uh, not just as a powerful moment, but as something that was genuinely unnerving, unsettling and very creepy to me. And, and I love how it resolves, too. But um, but yeah, that's that's my big scare. Definitely. I mean, who likes a weasel? Not me. <laughs> um, scares. Um, the the tunnel sequence is definitely up there, and it is a uh, hinge point for Larry. I uh, and you know the, one of the distinctions that's usually presented to separate literary fiction from genre fiction is that literary fiction you know, has, has stuff that strictly speaking, isn't necessary to the plot. And that's, that's this entire sequence here that that could be bypassed entirely because it doesn't, it does not in and of itself move the plot forward. And yet it's vital for grasping who Larry has been and who he's turning into. And the, the ardor of having to um, negotiate the tunnel and and just the constriction of death that that means you know because it literally is that and at the very same time it is symbolically that it is leaving behind death it is it is um penetrating through this corridor that i think typifies perhaps where it is literally where larry comes from but he is leaving that behind, right? And that is the service that it renders. And that's not something that maybe we expect from an author whose books are available in, you know, the paperback rack at a grocery store. But that sequence does that and and does it wonderfully. Um, another scare of a more like like existential dread kind of sort is Nadine knowing what her destiny is and not having any real way to escape that. The sheer uh, knowing that it is coming, its inevitability, and the powerlessness to, the seeming powerlessness to choose another course really bothers me as I ponder that and to the the only escape from it is to provoke your own death like that is extremely hard hitting and i think that the the miniseries it it can't it it can't come close to replicating the terror that is there for the literary nadine but like going back and looking at you know what I could with the the time that I had um that that stuck out to me as well um because that's that's what we feel like um so many times with with lesser things that there's a future that we are we we fear that we are destined to um uh, inhabit uh there's a future version of ourselves we we fear we're doomed to become and we feel that that angst that dread of um n- all routes seem to lead only here. And yeah, that, that really lodged itself uh, somewhere between my brain and my heart, watching, watching the, the miniseries and, and revisiting some of the text. And 
I, I wouldn't, I didn't like jump out of my seat when this happened, but it's, it's such a nice touch. Um, Bobby Terry, AKA Sam Raimi, <laughs> the Randall flag swooping in the very second he screws it up and, and the Bobby Terry, you screwed it up. Culminating in there were worse things than crucifixion. There were teeth. Uh, that's, that's just grotesquely lovely. Oh yes. Oh yes. I almost, that's my, that's my second place, Ian. Like I I mentioned mother Abigail. My second place is when poor Bobby Terry shoots the face off the judge. And then, you know, the, the, the crow like transforms right there. And then, and then the line, the line is just is insane. He said, there are worse things than crucifixion or there are worse things in death. There were teeth. Oh, and it's like, man. oh, my God, I can't even No, I can't even imagine. One, one who better to play uh, Bobby Terry than Sam Raimi. I mean, <laughs> right. Yep. exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, if that I, I will say before we because because I have a, a sort of a thematic launch pad to start that part of the discussion uh, with things. Um, but I, I will say before we sort of steer into that, is there anything non-theme related that hasn't already been mentioned that anybody would just want to take a moment and say, hey, I don't want to finish the conversation without mentioning this thing. Scares, likes, dislikes, trivia, anything? I'll just give a moment to see if anybody has anything else. I could not get past Rob Lowe as Nick. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I yep. literally couldn't either. <laughs> and I've, I've seen Rob Lowe in plenty of things, but all I pictured was Chris Traeger. Yep, that's right. That's, that's literally going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Reed, Reed, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a non Rob Lowe at you. Um, uh, this this I've got this under scares, and and you know it could sort of bridge a gap into themes, but it doesn't have to whatsoever. But one of the things I found. And it's interesting because Glenn Bateman at a certain point says, I think it's him that this quote is from the old ways are his ways. And um, there's a moment that really arrested me late. So Mother Abigail has already departed Boulder. Um, Maybe it's after the bomb. I can't remember. There's one kind of final scene of a free zone committee or not committee meeting, but a big free zone populist meeting yeah you know, like it's following the bomb okay yeah. and how the crowd turns into this sort of communal rage yeah um in a, in a, and why that was so scary to me was at least for the broad strokes of the story boulder is the quote-unquote good side and right. and what happens when that sort of communal rage happens in the quote unquote good side of things, you know, and, and what we do where rage exists, where it is not supposed to be, you know, I, I don't know. That was a really kind of scary, you know, old ways or his ways kind of moment for me. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, go ahead, Ian. So um, I know that sometimes I am uh, characterized as a Luddite, so it will not be a surprise to some people that. I enjoy that Flags Vegas is a technocracy that prizes itself on efficiency and the Boulder Free Zone is a bit more haphazard. It's organized, but it's it's low tech. And yes, yes, I like that the contrast is there. I think it's important. Um, I think that it might be... 
a little ham-fisted in the execution in the book because I, again, I read this like many moons ago, right? And I don't, it, it's not quite as emphasized uh, in the miniseries, but, you know, Flag is stockpiling. Not It's not just that he's sending, you know, uh, Trash Can Man, a.k.a. my bow, my traveling bow, uh, Jeffrey, to, to get the big one. You know, they're, they're amassing fighters. I mean, they're, they are building themselves up as a, as a power, you know, n- not just this little, you know, enclave of, of bad guys. But, uh, I, I think that the contrast could have been maybe a bit more artfully handled instead of maybe a little, I, I feel like it's a little simplistic, you know, bad guys are here where technology is good guys are here where technology is not so much. Um, and I know mother Abigail, the the attempt is made to soften that some, I do like that. She says that, you know, people are going to get drawn to flags, Vegas, um, because they're looking for order, you know, they're scared and there is, there is order. There's efficiency. There is progress of a sort, that is happening there because it is um, there's a technical prowess in place. Um, the The problem with technology is not just devices; it's you know engineering solutions for human problems, and that's already what's happening at Flags Vegas because the the issue of engineering problems for uh, engineering solutions for human problems is a demonic one, and that is what's taken root in uh, Flags Vegas. And I like that. I think that's important, but I think that maybe it can be done less overtly, less... Um, it, sometimes I felt like it had the character of, well, obviously they're the bad guys. They have all the tech. Like, and look, like that's attractive to me. But at the end of the day, it's also a little, a little two-dimensional. And um, I think that the complexity of picking a side could have been brought up a bit more by characters um, could have been typified maybe with a couple other, a couple other characters, maybe in the having the temptation in Boulder to try to develop like countermeasures or appropriate some techniques. I think that could have been an, uh, an interesting way to examine what the problem really is. Because again, it's not just, you know, itineraries and gadgets. It's the the ground and the motivation for reorganizing, you know, the human project uh, according to the rules of developing an app or, or software. You know, that that is where the issue really lies. Yeah, it's it's what Glenn Bateman says that he he's going to have the trains running on time. And uh and I was like, yeah, that's that the efficiency of it. Well, and it, it harkens back to all those old statements of like the devil is in the details and all of these specific sort of sort of touch points of how yeah, the, the, there's an efficiency to evil um that uh may not necessarily exist the same way for good. And uh yeah, that is that that is definitely compelling. Um That's why it's so easy to fall into. is cuz it's so efficient. Sure. Yeah, and 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 order is attractive. 
And uh-huh. order order is something like you will. I mean, I'm, th- this is not my proposed theme, but we can camp out here for a second if we want to. There is something. Th- the reason these people are drawn is they're drawn to power and uh, order, and they're drawn to like he's got a plan. He's got this. You know, he's got things. Uh, he's in charge. He's the man in charge. He's the one with the authority. And so, some degree out of fear, and some degree out of like this attraction to. Yeah, you go talk to Mother Abigail, and she's like, "Well, I don't know. I don't know what the Lord's gonna do. I'm just, I love y'all, you know." And and so that's basically. I I think that the efficiency of evil is a more fruitful concept than because uh, I've seen criticisms from uh, you know people who otherwise like the stand that it turns into a simple dichotomy. The the gradient is simply how much one uh, relies on or appreciates technology. And that is the determiner for, you know, good and evil in the novel. And, you know, again, that comes from fans who otherwise, you know, speak to really enjoying uh, the characters and the plot. And I think that this is one of the, you know, weaknesses of the book. It's just that it doesn't, it doesn't need to be. It's a it's a matter of the execution, not of the idea itself. The idea it's, is fascinating, and it that the idea directly informs why I am so skeptical of not technology. I'm just skeptical of how you know humanity, who is curved in upon himself ever since the fall, makes use of technology you know we um and that there's a whole you know litany that i could launch into but suffice it to say that we seem to operate more regularly on the oppenheimer principle if something is technically sweet you know you develop the idea and you only worry about ramifications after you have executed the idea and brought it to realization. You know, it, the gravitational pull is towards the accomplishment of this, you know, twisted poesis, just the, the making, the artificing, you, you know, like, I, again, bringing back Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the elves of the second age developing rings of power. I mean, prior to that, you know, the Silmarils, there, there is a wonder. There is a, there is a beauty. There is a, there is a real greatness in developing things, but uh, the the risk is always there. Of um, why are they being manufactured? And too regularly, you know, the technical sweetness is what overrides any other concern the manufacturer of something that is technically superior is the end in and of itself. And I guarantee you when that is the case, it will open a Pandora's box of unintended consequences. And that would make for a really interesting lens to look at, you know, how people, you know, subdivide in the stand uh, according to, you know, whether they seek something that is more 
slightly more decentralized or something more authoritarian. And I just think the examination of our own shadow could be interesting because so many of the people that go to Flags Vegas will follow authoritarianism to try to inoculate, you know, themselves, the society, you know, that abstract concept against evil. But all too regularly, when we try to build a buffer between ourselves and evil, we, we are giving in to evil. And what we're really doing is trying to banish our own shadow with, with the very means uh, that we, we imagine the enemy, whoever that is, uh, is going to use against us. And we don't recognize the irony or um, just how deeply problematic it is. Uh, and yet again, I mean, Bormir, he wants to use the ring to protect Gondor, um, but to use the ring is to become Sauron. And that would, that would be a fascinating hermeneutic to bring to trying to understand just in a more granular fashion, why some people go this route and some people go towards, you know, the Boulder Free Zone, for instance. Right. And and there are people who are like, well, they clearly don't have their act together. So why am I going to go over there? I'm going to go over to this guy who's who, who knows what to do and knows what the score is. Because, man, when the chips fall down, he's going to be the ultimate one, like, standing when it's all said and done. At least, at least he has a plan. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, because when they, the way they see it is like you go west and you're like, you know, Mark of the Beast signing your soul away, all this other sort of stuff. And she, in the in the few places where she addresses it, does seem to have an understanding of just like, no, like any number of things can entice people into the wrong direction. Any number of things. Uh, you know, the, the, she never says this in the book, but the old statement that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That, like, you can, you can have ultimately the best ideas or, or what you think will be the most wholesome ideas ahead of you and still go, you know, head down the wrong path, uh, for simply not being discerning enough to recognize, you know, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is all going badly. And I do love, how when Flag finally starts to lose his grip on everything, and I do love some of those segments of the book, um, and having seen the miniseries relatively recently, earlier this year, and having finished the book, you know, very recently, I love the book sort of like emasculates Flag left and right. Like, it, 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 he, it is constantly zoning in on how... He is losing control and he's losing his grip and he's losing his ability to see clearly and he's losing his ability to control. And uh, and that really resonated very strongly with me because when you navigate the way he does by, you know, this sort of magician's power and uh, th- this sort of way of like, I'm going to be charismatic and I'm going to entice by fear and threat and I'm going to crucify the drug addicts and I'm going to crucify anybody that disagrees with me and I want these bolder free zone representatives so I can put their heads on poles and that's what he wants to do. And when you navigate that way, that is terribly, terribly fragile. It's not ever really explicitly stated in the book, but I love that there's a distinct impression that leading by that kind of power is terribly, terribly fragile. And the real strength is in men who, you know, choose to just 
pack up and walk across the wilderness and stand head held high, confident, bold, admittedly afraid, but unashamedly like, hey, yeah, we're here. There's no pretense about why we're here, and and that's where the real strength lies. And I just I love that. I I love that undertone to it all because I think there's a lot to glean there. Um, I want to jump on that if I can read. Can I do that? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. By all means. So part of me would love for this to be like, oh, it's the final button, but I, I feel like you just sort of teed teed me up here in a way that I can't ignore. Um. I have a, I mean, I have, oh my gosh, so many little theme notes here, but one that really captured my imagination and even more than that captured my spirit. Um, the more I dwelt on the work was, and I don't know if this distinction is super clear in the miniseries. Cause again, I've only watched it once years ago, but I always wrestled the first time I read this book with the spies I wrestled with what felt like the lack of narrative value of them, Hmm. you know, and, and, and Reed, you already invoked the meta commentary about the bomb and that sort of thing. Like, sure. Sure. Did he, did King as a writer already send these spies and now we got to figure out what to do with them? Well, because in a very real sense, like, Dana gains nothing for the free zone. Uh, Judge Ferris gains nothing for the free zone. Tom returns from Las Vegas, but doesn't really gain anything for the free zone. And so I was really dwelling on this idea like, okay, what? Well, bringing Stu back is something. No, you know, no, totally, totally. But in terms of his pur- his initial purpose, which is right. information gathering. Um, and so I was really dwelling on this dichotomy of the spies who bring back nothing in terms of what they're sent there for, at least, and the standards, if you will, that's a stupid phrase, but you know, the Glenn, Ralph, Larry, and Stu. And something that really captivated me, and and we can sort of thread this through current culture if we want to, we can just sort of camp out here, we can move on to other things if we need to, but what I was really arrested by is you know, the book is called The Stand, and I feel like there's something powerful about how the spies, the spy, so so I think it may be Glenn at some point or, or another character of his sort of similar intellect at some point references, maybe even Mother Abigail, references Las Vegas as this place of secrets. You know, late in the book, Lloyd learns that he's had information kept from him by flag. And that really throws him off right. uh, the identity of Tom and that sort of thing. So he's really thrown off and realizes secrets rule this place. And I found it really fascinating that the spies are layers into that place of secrets. They are them. They are themselves secreted in. They themselves don't know who each other are, you know, like they know, I know Ian, but I might not know that Ian and I are sent as spies. Well, same there. Like they know who each other is, but, but they don't know who has been sent. So they in secret are sent to the place of secrets and essentially for the broader narrative, for the pursuant of thriving civilization, gain nothing. Well, then you have this juxtaposition, this dichotomy of them with our quartet who are sent with nothing and are sent head heads held high, uh, visible 
and intentional and open and boldly defiant to the, the, the dark magician, to the land of secrets. And what's really fascinating to me, if you, and again, I, I, I don't know how well this translates to the miniseries. In terms of the text, the spies have no real impact on Vegas other than Dana slightly disrupting a flag, as you termed it's, it. Read it's the same in the miniseries. Well, they, they have nothing. The presence and fortitude and spirit and verve of Glenn and Larry and Ralph present, willing and open in Vegas disrupts the whole operation. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Glenn in the prison cell is one of the most amazing sections of that book. Like his open defiance, Larry's steeled resolve, once they're paraded out and put in those manacles, the chains to be, you know, torn apart. I don't know. I think think all I'm trying to prop up here for potential conversation is is this really fascinating dichotomy of what we, what happens or doesn't when we secret ourselves and f- enfold ourselves in the machinations of i don't know let's call it the world or you know the the dark things or whatever and the difference between that and when we sort of boldly defy and st- I, I don't know if anybody ever saw this movie as a documentary um, or actually, no, maybe it was a, a fictionalized version, but I think there was a documentary. Um, Sophie Scholl, The Last Days. I don't know if that rings a bell. Yes, um, it's, it's been a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah. Great story. But but people like that in history who boldly defy, to be frank, an author- authoritarian regime, you know, who, who stand in opposition to those powers and principalities, if you will. And face imminent death in order to disrupt that status quo. That that's that's my theme. What what do you what do you guys think? <laughs> well, actually, so so to to piggyback a little bit, and it's it's kind of along the same vein, but I will say that while like from the surface, whenever you hold your head up high and you go into situations, it's gonna look foolish. Sure. Yeah. And so like like doing good is foolishness in this world. Period. Like there's and it's not it's not foolishness as in why are you doing that? That's stupid. No, it's foolish in the sense that like the the proverbs say the foolish shame the wise, the right. weak shame the strong. Like God potentially intentionally uses the foolish and the weak to disrupt and and so, uh, it, I, I think back to uh, to "Won't You Be My Neighbor," uh, which the big question that I came away with, I saw it the second time, and I was thinking to myself, basically, what I learned from this is that Fred Rogers, at the end of his life, was saying, "Did I actually do anything with my life? All these years of being on TV, did I actually change anything?" And on the surface, no. He, he didn't, if you look at it from a very, like, kind of stand back and detach yourself, it probably didn't change that much. But you know what? He did the will of God, and it, and he did work. 
and it was good and it and it led to hope within people's hearts and within their desires and that is ultimately more important than what it looks like on the surface and so like like it's that idea that 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 doing good like while it may seem like foolishness in this world is never actually foolish it's it's strength and so well, and I'll, uh, Blake, I want to make sure that you're concluded with your thought because I, I have yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, no, wanna, no, go for it. I want to piggyback something on that because yeah. what the, what this conversation is bringing to mind, and this diverts a bit from, uh, Nathan, your your concept of secrets and, and openness, but in, in this concept of like uh, what real power and strength truly is, one of my favorite passages from the scripture is when... Jesus is standing before Pilate and he has been flogged at this point and he is preparing, you know, Pilate is kind of desperately trying to not crucify this man because these people are hungry for his blood at this point. And Pilate is like, I, he's, I can't find anything wrong with him. I want to release him, but they won't relent. And so then he keeps trying to compel Jesus to speak and says, don't you realize I have the power to release you or to have you crucified? What I love about the moment when Jesus says back to him that, you know, iconic statement of you have no power over me unless it's been given you from above. What I what really compels me about that moment is that when he says that he is not standing upright with armor on he's not you know I, I i i can only imagine what the sound of his voice must have been like but he has been beaten he is he is bloodied he is a mass of flesh that i can only imagine after staying awake all night and being beaten about the face and spit upon and dragged around from you know this place to that place and he is standing there when he says that he is a shell of humanity at that moment but that is when he stands and still says you have no power over me and there's something deeply resonant to me about like i'm thinking about what nathan observed about narratively the spies don't really do much but I couldn't escape the fact that it is through Flag's inability to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish from them that begins the threads and the the sort of underlying sort of um, uh, revocation from the people in Las Vegas of Flag is the man. You sure. know, like they begin to see like, oh, he can't he can't catch these spies. He wasn't able to. One woman charges in there, and he can't even get from her what he wanted to get from her like this feeble little woman and then and so that that is one thing where then looking at the the men who make it and make their stand in uh in vegas it's i think sometimes we picture that the ultimate victory the ultimate power the ultimate strength is going to be the defeat of the enemy or it's going to be the neat little bow where it's like oh yeah this is in other words you could argue, and I've thought about this, well, why did the four men even need to stand out in the middle of there? Why didn't some other thing orchestrate where he calls together a meeting, hey, we're going to go tack Boulder, and, and then suddenly Trash Can Man shows up with the A-bomb, and it's over and done with? You know, like, why did our four heroes have to be involved at all? And what I came away with is thinking, like, no, that is the victory. It doesn't ultimately matter whether yeah. or not flag survives or not. The victory is you have no power over us. Right. We stand yes. right here and you can do what you will with our bodies, with our being, but you have no power over us. Like you pointed out, Nathan, the uh, Glenn standing there defiantly and 
saying to Lloyd Henry after he's shot him three times, uh, saying it's it's okay, you don't know what you're doing. Like that's wow. that's yeah. power, that's yeah. strength, and that's the kind of strength that you can't uh, you can't calculate with population or control or armament or anything like that. That is a profound strength, and that I think is what is at the heart of the book is. Are we going to be that variety of humanity that stands up and 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 stares it down and says no that you you are smoke and mirrors you are an illusion you are uh you know just a big cawing crow and you really amount to nothing much in the ultimate scheme of things and I find that tremendously powerful tremendously powerful and uh, I can I can use that to unless uh, uh, I'm going to ask one more time, unless somebody's burning to piggyback on that, I'm going to segue into one sort of additional thought. Everybody good? Well, I kind of like to yeah, share um, a personal experience about what you're talking about. Please do. Okay. Please do, Jeff. So uh, like Nathan, I have a hard time staying plugged into church. Uh I've kind of been going off and on to this church. Don't throw me under the bus, community. brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm empathizing with you. I know, you. I know. I'm just kidding. So I've been going to this church on and off uh, for a couple years, and it, it, I just have a really hard time getting plugged in. This new church opened up last month in my little community. Uh, so I went to check it out. I went to the wrong address, ended up walking into the service late. It's only... 60 people in the church hmm. only seats left are in the front row, which I hate because I don't like the spotlight being on me. I just want to do my thing. So they had this guest speaker who was the pastor's ex pastor. And he starts the sermon saying today's lesson is going to be on lies being told in the Christian community. Uh-oh. So I'm like, okay, this could go one of two ways. Anywhere. <laughs> and it's going to be really bad or maybe pretty good. So the first thing he talks about is Chelsea Clinton and abortion. And I'm Uh-oh. just like, what are you oh, doing, man. man? He says some other politically charged things. And I'm like, is, am I going to have to just get up and walk out of this? Like, uh, this doesn't feel... Well, welcoming to anyone but a certain type of person and he ends up saying according to the bible we're only called to help poor people if they're trying to get out of poverty oh my gosh, <laughs> oh, wow. oh my gosh. So, you know yeah i had that exact response and i felt like i should get up and say something. But if you've gathered anything about me just on this podcast, it's that I'm a man of few words. I don't like the, (laughs) I don't like the spotlight on me. So front row, I just get up and I walk out and part of me felt silly and foolish. But part of me was like, I, I had to get out of it. So Hmm. I guess what I'm getting at is for me, that was taking a stand against false Christianity. Everything I know about Jesus is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. But I guess I struggle 
with maybe I should have done more. Hmm. And I can I, I can sympathize deeply with the feeling of like you want to correct. Yeah. You want you want to to make uh, this sort of uh, bold declaration, as it were. And I do think that dependent upon the situation, that may be called for uh, from time to time. I would venture to say that, um, uh, purely speculating upon the story that you've told, uh, I would venture to say that, like, yeah, it, it's entirely possible that you might have tried to say something like that, and it would have just ultimately turned into a futile argument, and and you would you might have left feeling sort of uh, maybe did maybe I didn't do the right thing, maybe I did, I don't know. You know, it's it's very difficult to speculate about how those kind of moments right. play out, but. But I think in this conversation about, like, what can I do and am I doing enough, uh, I, I am not trying to be silly, Jeff. I'm really not. But I'm like, I'm going to lean a little bit on Mother Abigail here and be like, I don't know what you're supposed to do when you get there. I just know you're supposed to stand. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what how it's all going to play out. And I think sometimes that's as much as we have to go on. I mean, I think if we're just really talking honestly about the mystery of faith, sometimes that's that's as much as we have to go on. Because sometimes the enemy has this concrete plan that they go and lay out and be like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and this is going to be my ultimate strategy. And the mystery of following the Spirit is you don't know where the wind's going. It blows this way, and then tomorrow it's going to blow that way. And you and, and that's what the Spirit is and that's what the spirit does and that's not to say that it you know the spirit is inherently anarchy <laughs> you know right. i'm not, i hope that i'm not coming off that way but it is i think it is imperative that sometimes we don't know what to do and i think in answer to your question could i do more should i do more i think all we can do is stand where we are and i'm i'm, I'm really not trying to use the the language of the book and the material to be very bumper stickery or, you know, very uh, pedestrian with it. I think all we can do is simply just sort of take our stand and be like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to be swayed by that. I'm not going to be pushed over by that either. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to plant myself right here. And having done all that we can, as the scriptures say, then then just to to stand in that place. So this is this is a feeble attempt to encourage you to say, like, hey, no, uh, sometimes there is more to do, and I think when you reach a situation that maybe there will be more to do, that you will then have the impulse and the feelings to do more mm-hmm. at that time. But, but well, I, no, also, we, I also don't yeah. want to gloss over, like, um, you know, if there's anything Reed and I uh, want to make happen for each other and for people who enjoy the fear of God, it's it's like, um, you know, to, to drill this down in a very practical way, these things we talk about on the show in a very practical way. And, and, and you just outlined something very specific, but I think for me personally, um, you know, I, I think more often than not a disruption can be a very holy thing. And I don't want you to discount what it sounds like you might be. And maybe I'm misreading, but I don't want you to discount what your act even if it was not intentionally as this sort of defiant sort of thing, but your act of disruption has ripple effects that you are unaware of, you know, someone who may have been feeling similarly to you, you know, that sees you act in that regard and, and maybe experiences some validation experiences, some, you know, sort of sense of encouragement, like, okay, maybe this is not these, these things that are being, 
you know, sent down from on high are not exactly Jesus, if you will. Um, so, so no, I mean, I, th- I think that's a very valid story in the sense that, and, and that's, that's what I was trying to convey with this juxtaposition of the spies versus the others. They are sent blatantly as disruption to the ruling authority, which is Randall flag in Las Vegas. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I, I think that's very applicable. And I'm sure that must have been very difficult to do. And and you should take no small degree of encouragement in just the fact that you were willing to that you were willing to take the stand that you felt you needed to take at the time. That's no small thing. It really isn't. Yeah, appreciate that. I I think that that's that is so excellent, Jeff. And that's the fact of the matter is because the stand does. Um, a more faithful job in so many ways of depicting the the need for unremarkable people to uh, make a stand. I think that that can inform how we go about not only examining, but, you know, living out an ethical stance that is informed by a, a theological anthropology that understands that we are limited that understands that we are always already compromised to some extent, that realizes that is not the destiny that we were created for, that acknowledges that there is an alternative, but also acknowledges that because we are always already compromised to some extent, that it is extraordinarily difficult to align ourselves with and just act in accordance with that eschatological vision. The temptation will always be at hand to pervert it. And the, the really scary thing is that it will be unintentional so much of the time in, in our drive to do right. Moral fog being what it is will blow it um, because the old man still lives his zombie existence um, drowned in faith and baptism. He still lingers and, and we self-sabotage. And yes, of course, many times we are cognizant of what the temptation is, but without that kind of confessional point that we remain in so many ways, our own worst enemy man, we will, we will, you know, pull the pin and frag our own efforts to contribute to the good without realizing it. And anyway, that one of the things that means, you know, it entails that, you know, resistance that, that sounds so, you know, glamorous and sexy, but the reality is that many of our efforts to resist the sway in, in the currents of 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 evil will be unglamorous and unsexy and it will just you know look like a very unassuming person getting up and leaving or you know four guys you know trudging to the center of opposition that is better armed better equipped better organized seemingly has every advantage and you're just going to tell them 
you know, 30 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, essentially. Um, and that can still sound really, you know, dramatic and, and, and sexy again, but I think that the stand read a certain way can invite something more like a theology of the cross that humbles the wide, puts the mighty in their place by bringing the focus upon, you know, the stews of the world, the, the toms of the world, right? Because the unremarkable will almost always serve as uh, a window onto or the, the, the unassuming portal uh, into the incredible and the extraordinary. And that's, that's the, that's the site where grace erupts through and interrupts and, and does so by clothing itself in the least of these and in what you would not expect, you know, in, in full on first Corinthians one and two style. And that's going to mean a lot of, you know, trudging through a lot of short aims, a lot of, a lot of actions that we take that maybe only a few people notice that, that don't become the subject of, I mean, big budget Hollywood productions or even <laughs> mid nineties TV miniseries. So the, the stand tries to do justice to the real profundity of our you know, quote unquote, unremarkable actions, but tries to keep it grounded in the fact that they are, um, as compared to, you know, like <laughs> some kind of X-Men scenario or the last starfighter or something like that, that it's faithful action that won't budge from where the good and the true and the beautiful is and opens its mouth to say where it is and to say what it is not. And a lot of the time that's going to be more useful than, than displays of power because displays of power tend to just crush and make new enemies, even if they seem to stem the tide for a bit. Whereas this kind of action can actually be persuasive because it will cooperate with grace in a manner that is consistent, more consistent with what grace is. So kudos. That's, that's something that we all can and should uh, take to heart and, and consider at the forefront of how we are trying to form our moral imaginations and ask, what do I do next? Um, well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's some, some significant substantial conversation there. I have one more thing that I want to sort of float by you and then maybe we'll, we'll all, uh, kind of land the plane a bit, um, or at least steer towards the tarmac. One thing that really stood out to me that I latched onto that has become, as time has gone on for me, a very important distinction in the conversation about, what are we to do with our lives and our faith and, and what are we, I, absolutely sort of uh despise is not too strong a word 
I despise the sort of like, well, you've got to find God's plan for your life. You've got to find you got to find God's plan. You got to find God's purpose for your life. The reason I define the reason I despise the terminology ha- has less to do with the fact that I don't think God has a plan. I I actually deeply believe that He does, um, and I believe He has. I deeply believe that He has intentions. Um, but I get very frustrated with the impulse to try to sort of solve the riddle, to sort of solve the puzzle, and um, and actively have come to a place in my life now to where I actively rail against it, where I will actively um, dispute sort of that kind of language. But one of the things that I love about The Stand is it, you spend an entire amount of time. When my wife watched the miniseries for the first time, she said she was very disarmed in the last half because she said, I thought it was all going to be about this plague. Like, I thought I thought this plague was the thing, and ultimately the plague was merely a device to get us to where the story is ultimately about. Um, but what I so deeply love about it, and I, I, I will invite kickback if you guys disagree. Um, I don't think you will, though, because it's, it, it, it's pretty apparent in the novel that the plague was really... Captain Trips was really not the intention of Randall Flagg or the intention of Mother Abigail's God. Captain Trips was just a thing that happened. It's just, I mentioned this earlier when we talked about this other stuff. Captain Trips just escaped. Like, it just happened. Randall Flagg, and this is what I, it, it stuck out to me this time around. When we're first introduced to Flagg, he's almost like this force. He doesn't even really know, like, where he's going. He's like, huh, is this what's happening right now? Yeah, I think this is what's happening. I think this is what I'm going to do. And I really responded very positively and strongly to that because there could be a tremendous amount of like we look at things in our lives and we would say, well, what's the meaning behind that? And I and and with sensitivity in my in my heart, if not in my words, um, I cringe every time somebody like speaks to the funeral of uh, a, a, an accidental victim or a suicide victim or uh, a young person and they try to infuse some sort of meaning in what has happened. Um, I understand that they're trying to be sympathetic. They're trying to be comforting. So I don't want to be too dismissive of that impulse. But in trying to sort of explain it, um, then they, they ultimately sort of introduce very, very um, misguided theology and often can make things, can make the moment more painful than it would have been to simply be present in the moment with them. Um and it's really easy to look at something like a Captain Trips and be like, oh, yeah, well, what was the intention behind this? And what was the intention by the people that survived? It's why, as we referenced earlier, that's why I love that chapter. Because it's like, yeah, these people survived. These other people survived. But then all these other things happened. Then th- these other things happened afterwards. And and so what I want to scratch at a little bit is this idea that we're, we're talking about taking stands and making stands and, and you know, what circumstances come to our lives that we can control and not control. And I think as I've grown older and just experienced a bit more and how I'm kind of trying to understand the world around me is I'm thinking more and more that there are just simply, if I can, you know, beat a dead horse phrase wise, that there are simply things that happen. This is just a thing that happened. Whatever happened, happened. Whatever happened, happened. Yes, there it is. Um, so whatever happened, happened. And that the the then sort of follow-up choice is, okay, well, now that this thing has happened, this apocalypse, this cataclysm, whatever word you want to use, now in the aftermath, 
there are going to be compelling forces pushing you one way or another in how you respond, in how you cope, in what you do next, in how you choose to understand it and extrapolate it and react to it. Um, there are going to be forces that are going to pull you one way or another. And that's what I love about the way Captain Tripp sort of just fizzles out. As Nathan mentioned earlier, there's no sort of big mystery about it. It was a biological warfare thing that got loose and wiped out much of the world's population. And now these people kind of have to, in misty ways, follow you know these these dreams, as it were, to their disparate sides. And it made me reflect, if I can be unambiguous about it, it made me reflect on how many times sort of the apocalypse hits your life, the cataclysm hits your life, or maybe it's not this big, you know, dynamic cataclysm. Maybe it's just the bad day hits your life, the bad moment hits your life, the betrayal, the the um, improper word, whatever it is. It can be as minuscule or as grand as your imagination takes you to. This thing happens. Whatever happened, happened. And now you have to actively decide well, where are you going to go after this? Right. And to use to use King's, you know, uh, m- metaphorical novel here. Um, it's not a metaphor, but you guys understand what I'm saying. You're, you're either going to drift towards Vegas or you're going to drift towards Boulder. You're either going to drift towards we are standing whole and ourselves or we are under the thumb of this this order, this plan. And I sympathize deeply with people who would respond to a cataclysm by saying, like, I'm desperate for somebody to just tell me what it all adds up to. I'm desperate for somebody to just give me an answer, and then if you can just give me an easy answer, then I'll follow that. And, you know, I'm deeply sympathetic to that, but I think it's a very difficult choice and a complicated and frequently painful choice that we have to make for how we are going to stand in the midst of cataclysm in the aftermath of Cataclysm, and, you know, where are we going to find ourselves? And unlike how some people try to extrapolate it, I don't necessarily think that, if we want to use this language, the enemy of our spirits is the orchestrator of these cataclysms. Ah, read! What? So, so like, listeners don't know this, but, and and you you trio who are, you know, uh, joining the fear of God, Reed and I are usually, like, Skyping with each other and can see each other. So you don't know that right now, because our cameras are off, I'm, like, rocking in my seat wanting to just, like, (laughs) layer, layer, layer on what you're talking about here, Reed, because you've, you've sort of, You've, you've really dialed in on something that was another major theme of mine. And, and this is not at all pivoting away from you, but in fact, building on that, like something I really wrestled with in the reading of this. And I've, I have in just sort of generally observing, especially Christian culture, but, but, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, it, it can be undeniable how much the the Christian culture has has radiated out into just you know Western civilization over the course of centuries. Well, th- this question I kept coming back to, and I was trying to figure out, okay, is this even a- applicable in the text? And I do think there's a way it all works together. And and, and read, thank you for the keys to this kingdom. So one <laughs> thing I kept wrestling with it was like, and this is I wrestled with this in the real world, um, and and it became sort of granular in the reading of the stand is why do we crave Armageddon? Why are we like desperate for it all to go up? And, Mm. and, 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 you know, if you listen to the show for an extended period of time, you know, uh, Reed and I love the show, the leftovers, um, you know, it posits a question in its third season. What happens when Armageddon or when apocalypse doesn't happen? Like, what do we do? And, 
And so I'm, I'm sort of retuning that question a little bit and I want to sort of build on where Reed was and hopefully spin off into some conversation with the rest of you guys too. But like, why do we crave Armageddon so much? And because I, I really think we do. Um, <laughs> and I think it's because it absolves us of the good we're called to do right now mm. because, because it, because it lets us wash our hands. And say, well, it's all going to end anyway. The super flu is going to take us out. Holy fire is going to rain down from heaven and take out those people. So mm. I really don't have to worry about my next maneuver, my next step. There's a, there's my wife borrowed this phrase from an author she likes. I don't remember exactly where the source point is, but we've tried to implement this sort of phraseology and ultimately this sort of methodology in our daily lives is what do you do when you're faced with X, Y, or Z? Okay. You do the next right thing. You do the, you do the next right thing. Like you figure out for you in the scenario what the next right thing is. And that's what you do. And I think we are so unwilling to do the next right thing. And so instead what we do is just say, well, it's all going to burn anyway. I'm on the side of good. I'm on the side of the, the, the Christians or the church or Jesus or whatever sort of, you know, kind of weird misaligned you know, sort of thing you've, you've adopted that you're now calling scripture or the church or Jesus or God or what have you, you sort of appropriate those things onto your motivations of not doing the next right thing in favor of, well, it's all going to burn. At least I'm not a Muslim. It's all going to burn. At least I'm not gay. It's all going to burn. At least I'm not those people, whatever, fill in the blank. Mm, and I just think yeah. it scares me. I don't, I don't, really scare easily. I, I, I do live with a lot of anxiety these days. I don't really love the culture we're in, but I don't scare easily, but I do get a little friggin' freaked out by what feels like the church's desperation for Armageddon, because I think we're unwilling to take that next right step, you know? And I think, and, and Reed, yeah. I don't, I, my intention was to build on where you were at. I hope I didn't take it too far afield, but that was what I was oh, hoping no. to do. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's very prescient, and we have we have um, guests here. I want to give them a chance yeah, to, please, to respond guests. as well. But um, but I, I will say just one thing is like I, I do think uh, no, I know that's what I'm saying. Like, we're going to get ready, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna get done. Um, so no, no, I do think you built upon it. I think uh, yes, we we hunger for what is the the easiest, clearest, most understandable path. Right, and and I think that. In his incarnation, um, in his movement of the people throughout Scripture, um, it j- j- God just simply does not break down that simply all the time. He just sim- he he just does not lay out. It's what I call the Betty Crocker God, where it's like you want the recipe, you want the formula, and then you just and that's why I think. Armageddon as a concept is so attractive is because I think a lot of people are just like, yep, well, I'm on right. I'm on the, the right side, so it, it all can go up in flames for all I care. And yeah, you're right. It does give them the freedom to just like wash their hands and be like, oh, I don't know. I mean, Flag's going to do whatever he's going to do. I'm just here. It you gives know, them just- permission to preach from the pulpit. If the poor really wanted out of their poorness, they would work to get out of their poorness. <laughs> yes. No, I'm, yes. And I'm for yeah, real. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a perfect illustration of absolving oneself of the right, the next right thing. You know, so kudos to you, Jeff, for walking out of abomination. I'm just kidding a little bit there. 
Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's but it goes back to what we were saying earlier is that's the efficacy of evil. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's super easy to not choose the next right thing, like you said, right? Like, it's right, it's super easy and it's super uh, people often like there, there's truth to the 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 saying that you know, pe- rich people don't get there by being good, <laughs> mm, mm-hmm, um. Mm-hmm. And it's not to down rich people. It's just to say sounds like a little bit. But go ahead. It's not like it's. It's more to say that there's a cost. Yeah, yeah. There's always a cost, and and whether that's that's a moral cost or a physical cost or whatever it may be, like there's a cost to having that kind of power or that kind of stature or that kind of money or whatever, and it's just super easy to fall into that trap. That's yeah, why it's it so really easy is. to fall into evil. And and so like it's it's easier for, you know, um Lloyd to shoot uh shoot uh, Glenn. Man. Glenn. Yeah, Glenn. Yeah, yeah, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. And three times than it is for him to basically turn the gun on on a flag. Like right. it's it's way easier to to shoot the guy in the prison like <laughs> who 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 isn't going to be able to kill you. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Uh than it is to actually do the right thing and probably attempt to get rid of the actual problem. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just easier to be evil. Yeah. Well, but, 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 day, but like, I, so. I don't disagree with you that yeah. statement ideologically, but I do yeah. think the problem is not, it's easy to quote unquote be evil. The problem is it's easy to just live our lives and not worry about anyone else. That's the easy oh, yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. Like we yeah, we yeah. we would we would bristle and we would how dare you Blake call me evil. Like like that's that's yeah. the struggle yeah. is to to be cognizant of the next right right thing means you have to be cognizant of your own life and how your own life impacts those around you to know well what the hell does it mean to do the next right thing? Let me actually think about that and reflect on yeah. that and meditate on that. Ian and Jeff, I'm stirring the pot here for you boys. Jump in whenever <laughs> you want. Okay, come on, buddy. Bring it, Ian. Yeah, the the thing is that look, sometimes it just happens. <laughs> and you know, it's it's frightening for a a Christian to. I mean, at least in <laughs> a post Piper world, where for several years it's been mainstream. Um, you know, with the young, restless, and reformed movement to just treat God as the omnicausal uh, reason for everything that happens. And that is just not the like traditional confession of what God's uh, direction of all things look, looks like. I, I mean, he is, he's the one, yes, who underwrites all that is. I mean, he writes the checks that make the agency of creatures possible in the first place. But without a careful parsing between, you know, allowing and, you know, direct causation you are left with the dilemma of God being the author of evil. And you can insist that he's not till you're blue in the face. But if you're at the same, the very same time going to insist that God is the one making what is happening happen, that is what you are, are left with. Sorry. You know, again, like climate change is just the way it is. 
Now, like, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to say that God becomes a, a distant, you know, deus otiosus, or is like powerless in the face of, you know, a world that just is what it is. It's not that at all, but it is that God incorporates the designs and the aims of creatures. And he has never made a move that has not so incorporated those designs and aims. He sets into motion the the pretext, the context, and works with an understanding of what the subtext of every creaturely action is. And he's going to permit certain things to happen because he has has his own ambition that is at work underneath what the intention of creatures is. So, yes, yes, God has allowed horrendous evil to arise in the world. But it, is not, it does not come out of a dark, unworked out, you know, chaotic strain in the center of God's being um, that is imbalanced and needs balancing out or something absurd like that. It doesn't come from a sheer naked will that will do whatever it wills because it is the most powerful thing out there. Damn it. Because that, that's a, that's a horrifying picture of God. That is a, that is a devil. God is the one who superintends all things, brings things to their course, energizes uh, the world and creatures so that they can act. And yes, permits certain things in the history of the world to bring other ends to accomplishment. And I cannot say with the utmost detail why the permission is granted in each and every single case. I can tell you that overall, at the macro level, the reason is that he has committed himself to saving the world and bringing it to the glory that it was originally uh, intended to possess and enjoy, and that he is going to make all things right through through Jesus Christ. But all the particulars of that, in every particular case, you know, no no one knows. No one knows. Um, and you should not even try to venture <laughs> or hazard a guess until you get a lot more information about the particular case that is, you know, deeply troubling um, whoever it is you're talking to. We just don't need another armchair hyper-Calvinist telling anyone that, you know, their loved one is dead um, because God <laughs> desires his uh, glory to be magnified above all else. Like, just get bent, go home, and take a nap. We don't need it. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's funny. It's funny, Ian. I, I want you to return to this, and I, I'm, I apologize for this asterisk here, but um, spoiler alert: 
uh, listeners will know we recently covered the episode uh, we recently covered friday the 13th as part of our i love the 80s series <laughs> you three at the moment don't know that uh because recording magic um but in that in that episode i relay a story about and and because i feel like this speaks directly to you and and ian you and i are are, are brothers from another mother and i'd say let's get a beer in illinois because you because you use words like technophiliac and omnicausal and i'm like i'm so in love with this dude like like <laughs> Like Trump, maybe is you a, should be Nadine. And right? Flat. Oh, hey, yeah. I, until or, you find or, out he doesn't drink beer, or or right, 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 or <laughs> trash can, trash can, and the kid, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but in that episode where uh, of our Friday the Thirteenth episode, I reference a story where a peer that I know primarily through social media, although we were um lived in proximity to each other reached out to me recently in light of a terrible tragedy and she was it's a middle-aged person and she was asking me she was like you know hey i'm looking for some kind of comfort and some 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 whatever here and relayed the story to me and i you know if you've listened to the show long especially if you listen to the retrospective 101 you've got a hint of sort of my background here but i you know i personally underwent some very private tragedy a number of years ago and and, and learned this lesson the hard way. And I think like it was a God ordained lesson to learn. And, and it sounds like you perhaps have learned this, at least in some regard yourself. And what I said to her, as I said, okay, before you get too far down the road, this is not going to make any sense. Mm. This thing, this thing that has happened to you, don't start trying to iron it out because you will not achieve that in your life. And that is not the, that is not the end point, And that is not the goal. And that is not what you should be pining for what, and, and I'm being reductive right now. Cause I used the phrase a minute ago, but I was trying to tell them effectively that next right thing kind of mentality. Like you, you live in, you deal with, you grieve over, you move forward one friggin' toe at a time. And, and that's, that's how you move. And, and so, you know, I think that's, in in tying it into the stand, and I apologize for totally derailing your story. That that was not my intention, other than to simply encourage and impart. But but I I do want you to come back to it if it helps. Um, but even tying into the stand, I referenced this earlier. Like Harold on his death mountain says, <laughs> "It was not flag. It is me." And I think as we as, as in this observation I made a minute ago, impassionately about craving Armageddon, like. We are so desperate to blame it. We're so desperate to blame the shit we do to other people on Jesus. And yep. instead of saying, wait a whoa, wait a minute. Maybe I am just really hateful in my heart. Mm. Uh, maybe I am just someone who, and this can be redeemed. Maybe I am just someone who has bigotry or prejudice or racism, whatever. Like, Maybe these are dispositions of my heart that I need to deal with. And I qu- need to quit waiting on Armageddon to take out the people I don't like because maybe there's a problem inside of me. Anyway, I'm really diverting here. I apologize for taking you out of your story. Well, and can I say something on that, too, just really briefly? Uh, it's, it's funny because I had this thought a little while ago, and then the conversation kind of drifted a bit. So I was like, okay, I, I'll, I'll let that thought go. But then you brought it right back to it, Ian, is I, I, something that um, I've speculated about with, with a friend of mine before is 
some people say like, oh, that bad thing had to happen or God let this bad thing happen because then that led to this, which led to this, which led to this. And so they look at it in this context of the good place they now stand in and then retroactively look back and say like, oh, well, then God let this bad thing happen. And my friend and I were speculating. It's like that just really does not line up theologically with how we understand God's architecture, uh, if you want to call it that, um, and how where we kind of landed in our speculations is that is just how good God is at redeeming and reconciling. Mm-hmm. That's just how good he is, is that it's not that he wanted you to make those knucklehead decisions. It's not that he wanted to let those cataclysmic atrocities come into your life, but he can restore with such unimaginable power that you may ultimately look back and think that maybe they were supposed to happen because you can see no other way that they could have gotten here. And that's just a testament to the effectiveness of God's redemptive power. And I completely agree with you. We would be false, in my view, to look back and say like, oh, so God, you know, God let this bad thing happen. It's like, I don't really see it that way. I see it as these things happen in the world, and I think I've heard some echo of this in interviews with Stephen King before about how he talks about how, like, in his works, there is chaos, and then there is intention, and these things are constantly fighting against it, and the intentionality of this side steps in sometimes and pushes just hard enough to create the the effect that it needs to and taking it into you know sort of my more specific christian theology i would say yeah god is just really good at redeeming he is just sublimely good at redeeming to the degree that we may even look back and scratch our heads about like was it supposed to happen i don't think it was supposed to happen and i would definitively say no it it was not in air quotes supposed to happen but God's redemptive power is not diluted by the fact that it did happen. Hmm. We we do not need any more uh, narratives of glory where the tank rolling over uh, piles of bodies or victims of injustice can be rationalized as the dark colors in a painting that come together to to give us the total glory of God. No, stop. You're not doing justice to the depth of suffering and injustice in this broken world. And it's the same justice that God demands in theological honesty on our part in describing the way the world really is and the way that he really is. Because the way he deals with the brokenness of the world is to take on all the brokenness of the world into himself and go to the point of utter liquidation as the lightning rod that absorbs all of the wrath and nothingness and futility and annihilation that that world both deserves and clamors for and yet desperately wants to be rescued from. And he sees to it because he really does care about creatures and the suffering of Christ at the cross. The horrors of the cross reveal what the heart of God actually is and reveals his real priorities, which is to heal creatures and bring them to their proper end. 
And it does not, it does not make light of creature suffering or give the the bogus consolation of, well, look, I'm getting glorified through it, so just grin and bear it, all right? That's, that is not the, the living God. And we all have to stop pretending that it is. So, you know, Captain Trips, um, I mean, you've already said that earlier, Nathan, like, look, it just happened, and it's like lost. Whatever happened, happened. And I think that we should just say that as Christians more regularly rather than trying to penetrate to what is more than likely right now unknowable you know where as in where this fits into the the overarching grand strategy of God and you know except that yes it has been permitted and I know that the God revealed in Jesus Christ does not willy-nilly let his responsibility slip and this somehow escaped the net of his scrutiny or his control. What I'm advocating is nothing like that. But what I am urging all of us to do is to see that it will probably hurt or even crush the people that we're trying to minister to when we weave these these narratives of glory that try to recast what is awful as in fact good and i've been the recipient of that before and i had a very difficult time not long ago that was rationalized in such a way I mean, really a way that only, you know, a a certain breed of Calvinists can try to do. And we all really need to calm down and weep with those who weep instead of cutting them off and assuring them that, you know, that this is all uh, for a grand purpose. And um, I don't know, just suggesting that the lazy Susan of Karma will, will spin around soon, you know, now that we know, quote-unquote, big, huge air quotes uh, right there, know, you know, what the, the the purpose behind all of it is. Because our scenario often is more like Job, and we won't get to know, and we simply just have to trust that our Redeemer lives. God is there, and that he's not an aloof Redeemer, but is intimately familiar with the temptation to feeling like it was all meaningless. That's that's the only redeemer worth having. He may have been a little old incontinent black lady, but he was there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, if we if we had more time I'd bring up that whole issue, but <laughs> what the being incontinent? Like you share uh, the was... the magical negro trope. <laughs> you know, I, well, oh. real quick. <laughs> <laughs> real quick i actually want to pick i want to touch on that and then we can move on and possibly be done you know it's funny you say that blake because i i pondered that as a as a thematic convention to to, yeah. to dwell on i i don't disagree with you or at least what it sounds like is your sort of potential critique and or criticism there but yeah. you know what's interesting is i listened to a 
an interview. It may have been on the Bible for normal people with William Paul Young, who wrote the shack. And, you know, he got a lot of blowback to his, um, refiguring the God figure in that or mm-hmm. the, or what we would consider traditionally the father figure as an old black woman. And he told this really fascinating story that really made me far more sympathetic to mother Abigail this time around. Although I do understand mm-hmm. what you're saying and the, the, the sort yeah. of magical Negro convention, but he basically tells this story of being abused by older men as a young person mm-hmm. and how, God to him in representation could not take the form of the traditional older man. Yeah. And, and that this, it, it refigured, it transfigured his ability to engage with God, the essence to envision that essence as an elderly black woman because of the amount of abuse he had suffered in this other sphere. I don't know. It really, again, I'm not, I'm actually sort of yeah, saying, yeah. I think that's a real thing that we should be mindful of, but mm-hmm. mother Abigail specifically made me think of that story. And it really was like, that's pretty interesting. I don't think Stephen King intended any of that specifically, but it was interesting yeah. to have heard that conversation and see there is some value in some of those recastings of what we would conditionally or traditionally consider you know, sort of the God figure or what have you. And, and, and I think if, if she had actually been more of an like analog of God, I, 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 cause it feels like at least of course I haven't read the book. So maybe she is more God-like in the book, but in the miniseries, it sounds more like she's just a messenger of God. Sure. Instead of it's a, that way. Yeah. And, and so, um, so if, it, if she was more of a incarnation of God, like I would have less of an issue, I think. Sure, uh, because sure. Because there's there's kind of an inherent power, yeah. uh, and kind of a, a element there that that adds to it. But uh, the the messenger uh, element uh, makes me less makes me a little bit more wary of her helping a bunch of white people. Yeah, well, and she did she <laughs> she did accomplish uh, much like apotheosis and Christ in the sidecar. She did accomplish a, a, a sort of standard kingism in this work, and that is she did make water. Yes, which there you go. If you pay attention to King's text, he uses the phrase "make water" a lot yeah. as a as an analog for urinating yeah. on oneself. Nice. Uh, I think at the at the attack of the we- at the, <laughs> at the at the attack of the weasels, Mother Abigail made water. I believe yeah, is where that happens. Yeah, that makes so sense. Like, okay. and, 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 and the other thing is, this King is far from the only one who does. This. Sure. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there, making, there's a whole making water. No, no, of, of 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 the trope. <laughs> like there. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm yeah. really I'm really hoping for the moment where a character in a King book is like, well, Christ in the sidecar. Yeah. I just made water all over myself. <laughs> That's the apotheosis of what I wanted to happen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother lackey. Do you want to, do you want to pass the plate? So, so ladies and gentlemen, after a two plus hour conversation, we are now going to enter into a, an epic David S pumpkins measurement. Now this is going to be a little tricky because some, we normally only do David S pumpkins for films. Uh, Some people have watched the mini series. Some people are going to be rating David S pumpkins based on the book. Some people are going to be rating it based on the audiobook. Some people are going to be basing it on the Wikipedia page. The miniseries. So, um, so here's what we're going to do. Okay, the the David S. Pumpkins measurement, of course, is in the area of style, scares, and substance. So here's what we're going to do. 
Um, I am going to call you out. I'm going to call the, the individuals out. I want you to give me a measurement numbers one through five. And what I want you to do is I want you to specify what medium you are giving that measurement to. Okay, so in the area of style. Nathan Rouse, I'm coming to you first. Bring it. In the in the area of style, tell me what medium you're giving and what number out of five you give Stephen King's The Stand. You know, surprising even myself, based on my previous reading of the text and watching of the miniseries, in terms of style, my interpretation being how, you know, sort of much I appreciated it, I'm giving it a, the book a five. All the way. Awesome. Awesome. Ian Olson. What are you giving to the stand for style? My David S. Pumpkins. Because I'm ready for my own thing. Style, I would give a uh, three. And it's 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 a strong three. Okay? Because, remember, I'm talking about the miniseries. And to get it more meat in this, I've referred to the novel many times. But style, I think I'd stick with a uh, three. Because, you know, it has all the marks of a, a TV miniseries from the mid-90s, which is exactly what it is. Although Ed Harris should add more style points, the problem is that dude from Coach, <laughs> he kind of kind of um, sacrifices a little bit of uh, sexiness, and Rob Lowe tries to make up for it, but... Um, just can't quite pull it out of that that trough. So, sorry to stand. <laughs> okay, Blake Collier, what do you give <laughs> to Stephen King's The Stand in the area of style? Okay, so I did the miniseries and the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> the page I give wait, a wait, five. Wait. Right, right. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no. I'm gonna give one one full thing. So I'm gonna give it a two. Okay, simply because the Wikipedia page was actually pretty informative. <laughs> All right, so it gets an it gets another one and a half stars. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Jeff Hansen, what do you give Stephen King's The Stand for style? So for style with the book, which I listened to, I'm gonna go with a five. I already want to read it again, especially after awesome this conversation. Awesome. Okay, I am going to give the book a four and a half, and I'm going to give the miniseries a two and a half. Um, <laughs> yes, because we're just we're just going to be all over the place. That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. Okay, so changing the order up just a little bit, I am coming to one, Mister Jeff Hansen, for the area of scares. What do you give Stephen King's The Stand? <sighs> didn't find it particularly scary i'm gonna go with a two all right for scares okay um one mr blake collier what do you give stephen king's <laughs> stand uh i'm gonna give it a big fat one for scares <laughs> all right mr nathan rouse what do you give stephen king's the stand for Scares, uh, especially propped up against his oeuvre, I'm going to suggest that it's not very scary and go with a two. I'm going to join Jeff. Uh, not quite as much a hater as Blake is, but I will give it a two. <laughs> All right. I myself am going to give it a three for scares because I agree. I think there's more substantive things than there are scary things. Ian, what would you say for scares? 
scares, I'm going to give a three and a half. And that's in large part because, like I said before, I don't find that there are many overt scares. Um, I find that the more existential, angsty kind of stuff does stick in my craw and invites a lot of contemplation. And that that stuff is good. Okay. Uh, I will lead the way for substance. Um, so on, on substance... Uh, Man, I so badly want... I'm just going to go with my gut. Four and a half for substance. I think there's a ton here. Um, I can't quite bring myself to give a full-hearted five, but uh, four and a half for substance on the book, Stephen King's The Stand. Uh, one Mr. Blake Collier, what do you give The Stand for substance? Well, so I'm going to assume a lot more from the miniseries. So I'm going to bring something to it. Uh, in, in the sense that I think it has the potential to say a lot of things, and I think we've talked about a lot of them. Uh, so I'm going to go with a, a pretty solid three and a half. Okay, awesome. Um, okay, so Mr. Ian, what would you give Stephen King's The Stand for Substance? Substance, I'll also give a three and a half. And just all of the aforementioned, uh, if you want a really cynical version of why it's three and a half. It's because this is a decent um, adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Um, But for a more serious reason, it's just that it tries to tackle some really good thematics that I think are fitting for where we are right now, where and when we are right now. And it does so with a humanity that, like, frankly, I don't always see in King's novels. And whatever missteps are along the way, overall, the shape of this story and the part that its characters play in bringing to kind of like vivid awareness the gravity and the import of what we do as the largely anonymous, unremarkable people that we are is, is more solid than it is not. Also, oof, I think that we should say oof a lot more. It sounds kind of sexy. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like you've got Tourette's or something when you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. All right. And uh, Jeff Hansen, what do you give Stephen King's The Stand for substance? I'm going to... Go. I'm going to go with a four and a half. Four and a half. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Nathan Rouse, what do you give Stephen King's The Stand for substance? Uh, I am going to land at a four and a half with substance. All right. Okay. Hot diggity dog. So, ladies and gentlemen, that means after all of that math and after all of <laughs> the calculations that we bring in, that means that we give Stephen King's The Stand 
Please seven. Please be let it be a seven. A seven out of ten. <laughs> Amen. As M O O N. That's spell seven. <laughs> it is. It is in fact specifically a seven point oh eight. But yes, it is a seven out of ten. David S. Pumpkins. So uh, yeah, perfectly fitting. It is. That's that's the most. Uh, that's the most confused David S. Pumpkins we've ever had. <laughs> like, <laughs> any but questions? ladies and gentlemen, you can. <laughs> You can so get to some sort of perspective, um, but uh, so yeah. So uh, I, I'll, if Nathan, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just sort of land the plane. Um, Go right ahead. So uh, I first of all want to thank you all so very much for taking the time uh, to engage with this material. It is hearty and lengthy, and uh, whether you are in watching a six-hour movie or reading a you know eleven hundred-page book, um, it, it required a lot of you, and we really appreciate your time engaging with the material and coming here to be on the show. I want to give a quick moment to just uh, give you guys an opportunity to say where you can be found um, or what you might be working on. So I'm just going to round robin it very quickly and then we'll uh, sign off and say goodbye. Um, so Jeff Hansen, as the newest member, we're, we're going to come to you first. Where can people reach out to you uh, on the social media webs, if they will, or and or what are you working on right now if you want to share? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Gwarf Jansen. I tweet about once a month. <laughs> nice <laughs> on average awesome awesome um and then mr ian olson who i think has uh devout like devotedly signed off on all social media things is there any place where people can find you are you going to remain the uh the mystical uh ponderous wordsmith that you are coming in in these profound ways uh is there a place where people can reach out to you and Blake Collier, you, however, are all over the internet. Yeah, where, man, where can everywhere. we find you? <laughs> especially on, especially on that one site that shall not be named, Blake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what? Uh, yes, all. Well, there's several sites that shall not be named. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now uh, <laughs> no, I'm on Twitter at Lost in Osmosis. Uh, you can find my website, which is blakeicollier.com. You can find all my articles and publications there. Uh, I have a article I'm going to be writing for Grindhouse Theology here pretty soon that's going to be comparing uh, Halloween 5 with Night of the Hunter. Ooh. And then I write for Mockingbird as well. I haven't written anything for them this year, uh, so I'm going to try to get something to them before the end of the year. Uh, and then I write a column for Real World Theology that's monthly, and I'm currently going through the decades of horror and we are about to hit the 1940s next month, or this month, technically. Nice. So that's where you can find me. Nice. Very nice. Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, you can stay tuned right after this conversation closes to hear the social media cues for the fear of God and for Nathan and myself. Um, gentlemen. This has been a tremendous thrill. This has been a real yes, pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much again. Um, and uh, it was great to have the Losers Club back together. It was great to have Flags Vegas uh, front and center. This was uh, this was a real delight to me. So, um, so yeah, um, listeners, uh, stay tuned to social media to see what's coming next for us. And, uh, guys, just thank you so much again from the bottom of our heart. We really appreciate you being here. Yeah, Thanks for having you us. Guys. Yeah. See you next week, everybody. See ya. 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes, or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Did you just say stay golden, Ian? <laughs> <laughs>